Into the Weird, episode 14. Mama Wally got nothing on me. Welcome to Into the Weird, a podcast covering the weirdness of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age. I'm your host, Billy D, and along with me is my co-host, the headless horseman himself, Herman Lowe. How are you, Herman? <laughs> Great, thanks, Billy. Hey, I, I know why you went that, that, that route. You uh-huh. recently visited, um, uh, if I can call it a location or a place where, you know, the headless horseman is said to frequent... Uh, the moors, the, the forests, the hills. <laughs> you want to oh, tell yeah. the listeners about that, Billy, about your recent trip? Yeah, my wife and I made a quick little weekend trip um, up to Sleepy Hollow, New York. And wow. we had a great time because we're weird. And it was, you know, <laughs> visiting a graveyard and <laughs> all these spooky uh, places. I'll tell you what, there. we went up in uh, a little bit before all the real crazy fun festivities get started up there. So we're planning another trip already, maybe next year, closer to Halloween when they do a little bit more, you know, fun, crazy stuff. Like you can go on these like midnight uh, graveyard tours and they're candlelit and everything like that. Yeah, oh, it's crazy. So <laughs> I definitely want to do that stuff. <laughs> See, I wish I could do that stuff too because I'm I'm more partial to horror, you know, in a rural setting. You know, um, uh, you know, forested area, farm, farmland, that kind of thing. That's why I want to go to Providence, like we mentioned during our last episode. And I also want to visit Sleepy Hollow. But, you know, when I was living in London, I did do the Jack the Ripper Midnight Tour, which was quite spooky, quite scary. You know, but that's smack dab in the middle of the city, you know, so you're very claustrophobic, hemmed in by these little alleys, but still an experience and a half. So, you know, I yeah. love these tours of, of famous murder sites. But that, like you say, Billy, that's because we're <laughs> we're messed up. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, pretty much. That's fine by me, though. I have no problem admitting that. <laughs> but I'm glad to know that your wife is along for the ride and she's suitably, you know, into all of these things that, that we so like. <laughs> yeah, and if she's not into it, she'll even just put up with me. So that's okay, too. Mm, tag along. Sidekick. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Unwilling. No unwilling sidekick. <laughs> but, but you know, they're there. So, yeah, for backup purposes. Uh, or, you know, mm-hmm. cannon fodder. They're like red shirts, you know, if you want to use yeah. a Star Trek analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to your wife if she listens to this. But, you know, Erin, my wife, she knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, 
Absolutely. Anyway, so Billy, today, because this is the first of our Halloween-themed uh, episodes that we teased on previous shows, um, just to reiterate and to get the listeners up to speed, uh, you and I, Billy, we mentioned a couple of episodes back that for Halloween we'll be doing three shows where we focus on some of Marvel's Bronze Age horror titles. And today we've picked uh, quite the doozies for the listeners, I think, um, uh, both of the titles that we're going to be talking about have characters that uh, have recently been uh, trending, I think, on our Twitter group, <laughs> if you can call uh-huh. it that. They're not trending, you know, uh, on Twitter per se, but, you know, lots of our uh, followers and our friends on Twitter, the people we follow too, they've been posting lots of Marvel Bronze Age horror content, you know. Um, uh, for the month of Halloween. So um, we can talk about that. So Billy, do you want to tell the listeners which two issues specifically we picked that we're going to be discussing? Yeah, for sure. Uh, First, we're going to be talking about Supernatural Thrillers number five from uh, 1973, and that would be the first appearance of The Living Mummy. That's Uh, right. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Now, I love the title too. They didn't just call it The Mummy, uh, you know, as the universal movie Mm -hmm. um, is titled. They went with The Living Mummy. And apparently, Billy, um, when I was reading up on this, this was Stan Lee again, you know, um, because all the names seemed to have to, you know, um, they had to run by all the names of new titles. Uh, you know, obviously, um, they have to run them by the editor. Um, and um, But Stan Lee was the guy who sort of gave the okay, you know, to use a title. So, you know, he loved The Living Mummy. Uh, the fact that you have to attach the the word the living in front of it. And um, I also like that because um, if they just called it the mummy, it would have been very, very generic. You know, they have the monster of Frankenstein for their other title, werewolf by night, the tomb of Dracula, and then you have the living mummy. So, you know, those titles really stick in your mind, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, they do. They're suitably uh, incredible. Uh, so, yeah, I like the, the fact that Stan, you know, uh, came up with this title, sort of. But, but Billy, let's talk about, you know, the, this time uh, at Marvel. This was now 1973. The horror comic boom uh, was definitely, you know, at its height. Because uh, at this point in time, Marvel had already had success with Tomb of Dracula, Monster of Frankenstein, and Werewolf by Night. So it would make sense that the next universal monster they tried to to bring into the fold would be the mummy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it didn't work out. This was the first, I think, you know, failure that they had in terms of a horror character because he didn't stick around as long as the other three aforementioned, you know, horror characters did. So um, it's a shame, but I can see why. You know, um, obviously Steve Gerber was writing him and Gerber introduced some things that you know, don't normally find in, in a comic book of the time in the early Bronze Age, right, Billy? I mean, for, for one, the protagonist is uh, Afrocentric, right? He's, his ethnicity mm-hmm. is definitely not of the white persuasion. So uh, I really like that. It was bold. It was daring of Gerber to do that. He did that in the Man-Thing too, the Man-Thing issues he, he wrote. But I think that's the reason why some scholars or some you know comic book... Um, aficionados why they say that it didn't really succeed because at that time people weren't ready for that you know they weren't ready for a black helmed horror character 
but you know, I disagree. I think it's great. I mean, look at Brother Voodoo. Look at uh, okay, this is not horror, but but Luke Cage. You know, all, those characters were successful. Okay, Black Goliath less so, but um, to an extent, you know, there was the the audience was there, but for some yep. reason, the mummy d- just didn't you know take. And I don't think it's the the, the fact that Gerber used you know. Uh, three actually, or four, if you want to 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 argue the point, four non-white characters, mm-hmm. which we'll be discussing while we talk about the issue. But what do you think about that whole, you know, what do you think about the mummy in general, Billy? I want to ask you that before we get into to talking about the issue. Do you like the 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 Universal Mummy and the the subsequent Hammer films featuring the mummy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Boris Karloff. Uh, that first mummy movie universal did with him and it was great. Love it. Uh, my favorite of all time film wise will definitely be, uh, the Christopher Lee, uh, mummy Same from uh, hammer. Yeah. 1959. <laughs> that, that one to me was way better. Uh, but yeah, as far as the comic books go, I don't know what it was. Cause the living mummy was, you know, it's definitely a fun read when you read these, uh, these issues that he was in, but it just, there was nothing that just, like nothing to grab you and and keep you and make you really want to you know get the next issue and the next issue in fact the ongoing stories just especially towards the end of supernatural or supernatural thrillers just weren't that great you know uh the the, the, vil- the villains he was going up against because they basically changed him from quote-unquote like you know villainous character to almost the hero and it just it didn't work and as you saw the 70s as the 70s wore on the horror craze really died out, you know, even Tomb of Dracula saw its end, you know, which was a a very good selling book initially and early on, and even in the the middle sold very well. And I just, yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with, you know, the living mummy, the character himself being a black character. Cause I mean, look at blade. He, he, people loved blade and Tomb of Dracula. Like you said, Luke Cage, there were all these other characters that were doing very well. So I don't really think that had anything to do with it. Just when you look at the stories, you know, as as the issues wore on here, they're just mm. not that great, to be mm. quite honest. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, even though Gerber wrote it, I think he was a little bit overworked at the time. You know, he was the hot mm-hmm. young writer. And yeah. also, he was already at this point in time struggling with editorial mandates. So, you know, he couldn't really push things the way he wanted them to. But on a title like, you know, The Living Mummy, I guess he was given a little bit more freedom because it wasn't one of their main titles. It wasn't one of their big sellers. He just started writing it. So it was a new character Mm -hmm. being introduced. They were trying new things. But, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the Headless Horseman and Sleepy Hollow earlier, Billy, because the the issue of supernatural thrillers (laughs) following The Living Mummy um, features the Headless Horseman. And I was thinking, like, why? was, Was The Living Mummy always... I mean, the first issue, obviously, issue number five of Supernatural Thrillers, was it always meant to be a standalone issue? Did they just want to try out a story which ended with, you know, um, which sort of wrapped up the tale and um, just to and then check the sales to see whether it sold well and then eventually bring him back into the title? It seems that that's the formula they chose um, Mm -hmm. because they did bring him back uh, right after the Headless Horseman debuted. Um, in issue six and then we saw the living mummy again in issue seven and then he was a mainstay until issue 15 um, and then the series was cancelled of supernatural yep. thriller so you know i think they they were just feeling him out and seeing if he would take and then there must have been some good fan response 
um, or even some some sales numbers that came in that that made them want to keep publishing him. But then I think later on, sales dropped. Um, you know, market uh, it dropped, and then they obviously decided to cancel the title, which was the reason most titles were canceled back then. But you know, I think um, uh, you know he, he did. That's my point. He did take in the very beginning um, because they 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 needed a fill-in issue featuring the headless horseman. Uh, so that they can sort of um, tabulate, you know, the sales numbers and stuff to see if it's worth publishing a, a, a second appearance. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what I think happened. But, you know, I'm I'm glad they did use um, the mummy as one of the monsters um, because, you know, I am a big fan of Boris Karloff, just as you are, but I'm also a big Hammer fan. So just like you, I prefer the Hammer film um, with Christopher Lee. And, um, you know, I think that the the horror tropes, you know, uh, like in, in people being entombed alive and, you know, you, you're um, focusing on, you know, the claustrophobic effect of horror. I think there's lots of good horror tropes in there that you could use in a comic book that you could exploit. And, and Gerber does some of that in this issue. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think once it's funny, too, because like I said about the when I got to the end of that book, I thought to myself, it feels there was like a, a finality to it. Mm. And I thought, um, I'm thinking maybe this was just supposed to be a one shot because you figure supernatural thrillers up to that point, up to number six, even then it was a different character. Every issue. That's right. There was no continuing story. So I think you're right. You got, you're onto something there where I think maybe the sales for one through four were marginal mm. and they saw, you know, they had headless horseman already slotted for six and, by the time six was out, they saw a little bit of the action on issue number five, and it maybe it spiked up a little bit, and they thought, "Hey, let's keep this going." Right. But right. like I said, then once you know John Warner took over writing, and then some like that awful what are they called the Elementals or something like that? Those awful <laughs> characters. Oh yeah, that he battles later on yeah. in that other dimension yeah. and <laughs> Earth, Air, yeah. Fire, Water. <laughs> oh yeah, my for god! For the last three or four issues, it's just it's just awful. Wow. There's that was no. Bad. You know, if you would have had, like you said, somebody like Gerber, who was probably very much overworked at this point, but if you would have had a writer of his caliber with, you know, a vision for the character, I could definitely see it transitioning into its own uh, its own series, but that wasn't the case. So, you know, mm. but, I mean, we did get some other appearances too. Uh, what, Marvel 2-in-1, I think, and then uh, what else? There was a couple of ancillary ones. Like, for all we know, they could have just been inventory stories that, you know, they were written and just never saw the light of day because supernatural thrillers was canceled, like you said. But you know, we did a couple more appearances from them. You know, that's true throughout I mean, the year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even in in modern times, I think a couple of years back, he appeared in a Legions of a Legion of Monsters mini series. He was just one of the you know Morbius's mm. underground you know a uh, monster troop <laughs> that lives in yes. the sewers in a giant lab and i think they also had something to do with stitching the punisher back together into frankencastle <laughs> so you know the living mummy he's he's around yeah he's definitely uh, as you as know, far as horror goes in the marvel universe i'm looking at that right now cuz i did it was one of the very last horror you know series or mini series or whatever i ever bought like new comics it's 2011 Legion of Monsters, yeah. and um, I'll never forget. I'm looking at it right now, and it just reminded me. <laughs> the very first issue, the name of the story is Hell Street Blues. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <That's great. laughs> 
<laughs> wow, I need to reread that. Oh man, that's a great name. Yeah, I've got the trade here somewhere, but wow, I haven't read it in a couple of years. Damn, that's a good title. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I came up right with that. <laughs> hey, we could call the the this show Hell Street Blues, but I don't want to. Say, I want to be more original. But wow, I'm going to mm-hmm. steal that title from them sooner uh-huh. or later. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Billy, just to tell the listeners, though, I mean. We're discussing two comics, like you mentioned, Supernatural Thrillers 5, the debut of The Living Mummy in Marvel. And then we're also discussing Dead of Night, number 11, which is the debut of The Scarecrow. Now, just right off the bat, I'm going to tell the listeners, my favorite issue is the one that you're going to be summarizing for us later, The Dead of Night, number 11. That mm-hmm. issue is just amazingly cool, you know, with uh, featuring The Scarecrow. It's just tremendous fun. I love it to death. But... This issue of The Mummy, it kind of underwhelmed me a little just because it seemed like, you know, Gerber was literally just trying out the character and not so much the story itself. But, um, you know, I still found a lot to enjoy about The Living Mummy. But I'm going to say it right now, Billy. My favorite is the one we're going to be talking about later, Dead of Night. What about you? Oh, boy. If I had to pick one, I would probably... Oh, boy. I think they're both pretty even for me just because... Uh, the Living Mummy, the the book reads like, you know, the Hammer film or the Universal film. Mm. So I, I enjoy that about it. Um, yeah. And the other, the, and the, <laughs> the Dead of Night <laughs> Scarecrow story is just crazy. There had to be some, you know, some bong hits or something while this yeah. one was being written because yeah. it's crazy. And it's like crazy fun, but it's crazy. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah, if you, if you talk yeah. about a more linear... Uh, plot the living mummy's the way to go the living mm-hmm. mummy issue but the scarecrow is all over the place and it's it's it, it doesn't make sense there's leaps in logic you wouldn't believe and you're not sure <laughs> what's going on you know there's a number of things but you know i still had more fun reading that issue for some reason and um yeah. i don't know maybe it's also just the art you know i love rico rival and uh, he did the art on dead of night 11 with the scarecrow mm-hmm. but um i also like rich buckler not mm-hmm. really doing a horror comic uh, for some yeah. reason. Uh, I don't really, I don't know. It's like kind of like, you know, when Don Heck did a lot of horror in the 50s and 60s, his horror mm-hmm. was like gruesome and, and, and mind-blowing. But then when he did some horror for Marvel in the 70s, it looked like his superhero stuff, but in a horror setting. You know, so it was a little yeah. bit more polished. It wasn't like so wild and crazy and... Uh, you know, and off the chain uh, as his earlier horror stuff in the 50s. So I don't know. I just find that Rich Buckler is more like a, a superhero artist for me. But, you know, um, yeah. the story by Gerber, I can't fault it. Like you say, he pays homage to the, the Boris Karloff mummy tale, and yeah. which is great. So, so Billy, let's get into this. I'm going to give the synopses um, for Supernatural Thrillers number five, and then you're going to do Dead of Night later on. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, listeners, here we go. Supernatural Thrillers number five, featuring the living mummy, uh, written by Steve Gerber, penciler Rich F. Buckler, inker Frank Giarmonte, letterer Gene Simek, and then the colorist is Petra Scotiz. Okay, and um, for any listeners who don't have this issue at hand and can't find the back issue... Um, you can uh, check out the Essential Marvel Horror Volume 2 trade paperback. I think it's not still in print, but you might find it off of eBay. Otherwise, you can just read it like like we do from the original issue. <laughs> if you can find it in yep. the back issue bin, it's not too hard to find. 
All right, so the cover is penciled by Rich Buckler as well with the inker Frank Giacoya. All right, here we go with the synopsis. Our story opens with two Israeli soldiers sitting on the desert sands of Egypt, lamenting the existence of war. Suddenly, they are taken unawares as a gigantic shadow falls over them. Turning, they behold an eight-foot-tall giant wrapped in bandages, the light of madness shining in its eyes. The soldiers attack, but they are as nothing to the monstrous strength of the creature who easily overpowers them. Yet, even consumed by a murderous rage, the creature inexplicably decides to spare its would-be victims and shambles off aimlessly into the desert. Next, we are introduced to Dr. Scarab, <laughs> an Egyptologist based in Cairo, who has come into the possession of an ancient bit of papyrus. He has just finished translating it when his anthropologist friends Ron and Janice show up, eager to learn what the doctor has discovered. He tells them the origin of Nkantu, a black prince of the fabled Swarili tribe, as chronicled by the translated papyrus. Nkantu and his people were enslaved 3,000 years ago by an ancient pharaoh named Aram Set and his sorcerous high priest Nephris. Tasked with erecting a temple to the gods, the slaves were worked to death. Under Nkantu's leadership, they planned a revolt, which would have succeeded had Nkantu not been laid low by the alchemies of Nephris, who first paralyzed him, then mummified the heroic black prince, condemning him to a living death, courtesy of an alchemical process Nephris had created. During the course of translating the papyrus, Dr. Scarab also learned that he has a connection to Nkantu, an almost psychic bond, as he himself is a descendant of the evil priest Nephris, who doomed Nkantu to a living death. Nkantu wanders into Cairo and rampages through the city, before finally making his way to Dr. Scarab's apartment, where he collapses in fatigue. After Scarab attempts to kill him by pumping his sleeping form full of bullets, Nkantu rises and renews his rampage. The advancing Cairo police seem unable to stop him, but unfortunately for the ignorant mummy, his unfamiliarity with 20th century technology proves to be his downfall. While ripping an electric pole out of the ground in an attempt to fend off his attackers, Nkantu steps into a puddle of water and promptly electrocutes himself. Our story ends with Dr. Scarab convincing the police to allow him to take custody of Nkantu's inert body for the purposes of further study. <laughs> yeah, and that basically, uh, that's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or in the uh, shell of a scarab beetle, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. So, Billy, what did you think? First off, let, before we get into the details of the story, what did you think of the cover by Rich Buckler? It's got a lot going on, but I love it. Just it's because there's, I love all the classic uh, monsters, so that's already going to hook me. Like again, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of exposition. There's cops everywhere shooting. They're shooting right at the mummy while he's holding a woman, which mm. makes no sense. Uh, but 
and then the mummy's karate chopping a <laughs> a giant pillar and smashing it for <laughs> no apparent reason. <laughs> yeah. But it's just hilarious. I mean, the exposition. One box. He lives, he walks, and bullets cannot stop him. Down at the bottom. One of the greatest fear fests of all time. <laughs> and then on the right, he waited 3,000 years to wreak the revenge of the monster. So it's awesome. I love it. It's hilarious. But I got to tell you, what I only bought this single issue a few months ago. Uh, before that, I had read the, the only time I had read it was in the essential uh, volume that you said about. I have that, and that's always mm. how I had read it before. But I actually was like, I want the single issue. I want all the supernatural thrillers. I have probably two thirds of them, but I want them all. But this was, you know, a little bit more pricey because uh, it's a first appearance. So anytime there's a first appearance, people think they can jack the price up ten dollars. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. But, but I did still find it at a good price, but I got really pissed off a couple weeks ago because I got it out to read it. And when I went to put it back in the bag and board, the tape on the outside of the bag grabbed onto the front cover mm. and tore off uh, the very top layer of the cover oh, damn. right on the girl's right boob. <laughs> 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 A big white spot. Oh god front. damn. A bit of whitewashing there. I mean the girl is uh, uh, you know an African American lady. What what's happening oh, there? I was so pissed. <laughs> that that is disturbing. That's like the stuff of nightmares for me. A damage to a classic comic and that happens frequently, but yeah. Billy, I yeah. I commiserate. I'm sorry about to to hear that. Yeah. But that is hell to have to have yeah. to experience that. But you know, um uh, apparently, Billy, this cover was, well, well when it was first uh, penciled by Rich Buckler, the the policeman standing on the balcony shooting at the back of the mummy, his arm was angled downward, making it look like he was shooting the victim. You know, the girl <laughs> being grasped uh, in the crook of the mummy's arm. And then, you know, um, uh, it was pointed out to him by, by the editors, and then he had to amend the cover. And he said, no, he didn't mean for, for the police to shoot the mummy, but it would kind of been cool because knowing that they can't stop the mummy, wanting to save the girl from, you know, a horrible fate, they decided to just put her out of her misery. So he would have run with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you wow. know, obviously he had to amend that. It was just a, a an, an error. He didn't mean anything by it. But yeah, apparently that's that's a little bit of an aside there about the cover. But you know, this this also, I mean, the the text they use in the cover that's reminiscent of the movie posters from that you can see on the internet from the nineteen thirties and and early nineteen forties monster movies. You know, where where they have these um, this this exposition, and and then uh, you know the part that they emphasize is written in giant letters: "The Revenge of the Monster," <laughs> one of the greatest fear fests of all time. So obviously there's some marvelisms in there as well, but that uh, bit of text on the pillar that he karate chops—that's definitely straight out of a Universal movie <laughs> monster poster. <laughs> yeah. and, and Billy, don't you just love the corner box art of the supernatural oh, thrillers? This little yes. wolf howling at the moon—I <laughs> love him. Presumably a werewolf. It could be a normal wolf. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have to ask Doctor Wolfman his opinion of that corner box oh, art, Doctor yeah, Wolfman yeah, on he Twitter. Might know. <laughs> so um that's the cover um brilliant and then you've got some excellent ads super strong bodybuilding course on the first page <laughs> of course yeah oh but i forgot to to tell you billy about my history with this comic i 
was insanely lucky. Do you remember that long box that my uncle gifted me when I was four? Mm -hmm. This issue was in that long box, you know? Oh, cool. But the cover had been torn off, uh. you know? So um, I, I, was, I was very familiar with this issue as a kid. I read it many times. And then, you know, I decided to pick up the issue again in the, I think it was in the 1990s, late 1990s. I, you know, went back issue hunting and I picked up the issue again. So the copy that I'm holding now is in much better condition. I don't have that very first copy that was torn. <laughs> yeah, but I was very lucky to, to get in, you know, on the quote unquote ground floor with the mummy. Um, but, you know, everything back then was just gold for me. I could read a horrible comic and still think it was gold. <laughs> I would think this is the greatest thing ever, you know. So, <laughs> But this comic is pretty good. With subsequent rereads, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I still like reading it. Uh, it's just not my favorite of the two, like I say. So the first page, Billy opens up with these Israeli soldiers, and then it seems that they're in a romantic relationship. As we know, you know, the Israeli army does comprise of quite a bit of, of women, Mm -hmm. You know, they, they don't have any uh, sexual inequality when it comes to or gender inequality when it comes to military service, which nope. right, right now the U.S. also doesn't have. I mean, women are serving in the military. But back then in the early 70s, I don't know, I don't think a lot of uh, uh, ladies were signing up for the armed forces in the States. But Israel, no, they've had ladies for, for a long time, you know. In, um, so, yeah, they're making use of them. And uh, they have different skills than the men, but, you know, um, just as effective, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I've, you've got to commend uh, Gerber here. Uh, like you said, it's starting out with uh, the, a man and a woman in the military. And then uh, throughout this entire book, other than maybe those nameless cops on the cover, everybody is of, you know, uh, foreign uh, lineage in this mm. comic book. Exactly, exactly. You know, even the mummy, like we talked about off mic there. You know, the mummy is, you know, he's from Africa. He's from an African tribe, you know, so. Yeah, well, that's where Gerber breaks from yeah. the traditional mummy origin. Like if you think about the universal yeah. mummy and the hammer mummy, they were mm -hmm. Egyptians, you know. Um, and, of course, even the modern mummy that we had in the early 2000s with Brendan Fraser and Arnold Vostu, mm -hmm. he is a high priest of, of Set or, you know, mm -hmm. so who became the mummy. So they're Egyptian. But here, the mummy is a slave, like I mentioned in the synopsis. Nkanti yeah. is a black prince of an African tribe, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, all the names in this story is Gerber poking fun at naming conventions, right? Billy, if you think about it, <laughs> Dr. Scarab is the Egyptologist, <laughs> you know, the descendant of Nephris, Dr. Scarab yeah. with a K. It's, it's mm -hmm. not a C, it's a K. And then mm -hmm. that makes it okay. <laughs> but this is just Gerber having fun. And then the Swarili, <laughs> what's happening to me? The Swarili tribe, obviously probably a riff on Swahili, I don't know. You know, uh, so Gerber was just having lots of fun with, with coming up with cool names here. And then, uh, you know, yeah, obviously. Nephris. Yeah, Nephris as well. <laughs> yeah, Nephris. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. And then, you know, uh, the mummy, like you say, being a black African slave, but also a prince, you know, mm -hmm. who whose uh, tribe is enslaved by the Egyptians to build this temple yeah. to, to the gods. Now, Billy, I want to mention something that I was thinking about earlier. Last week, you on Twitter, and, and even I think you, you uh, messaged me directly about this. You said you watched the, the classic 1970, 1972 movie, I think, horror movie. 
blackula. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Where where yep. Okay, now for the listeners who haven't seen this movie, Blackula is part of the the whole 1970s black exploitation craze where you have uh, Count Dracula, you know, 300 years ago or 250 years ago turning a black African prince into a vampire to punish him, you know, so he sort yep. of curses him with living death. Now, Billy, this is very similar to Nkantu's origin. <laughs> now, I'm I'm going to go uh okay, off the record but I'm going to think, I think really Gerber took the origin, you know, from Blackula because Blackula debuted a year before this comic. And his origin and Nkantu's origin is exactly the same. You know, think yep. about it. Uh, in, in Blackula, obviously, you know, the black African prince wants to free, you know, Africa from slavery. So yep. he appeals to Count Dracula in Transylvania <laughs> as Dracula's <laughs> guest but Dracula supports slavery, so the, the relationship <laughs> sours, and then the prince insults Dracula. Dracula insults the prince's bride, and then they, they throw down. And then Dracula ends up punishing the prince by turning him to a vampire and entombing him alive. Now, yeah. Billy, doesn't that sound doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, Cantu, he he's a black African prince. He causes this revolt, but because it's in Egypt, because there's an evil priest. You know, Nephris, Nkantu is defeated and he's captured and he is in fact condemned to a living death by being transformed into a mummy by Nephris. So almost exactly the same. And then he wakes up in the 20th century, just like Blackula then wakes up mm-hmm. in the early 70s. Um, <laughs> and then goes on a <laughs> rampage. It's exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. The only difference I can think of off the top of my head is in the movie... Dra- what the one thing that really sets off uh, the black prince, uh, Mama Waldi is his name. Uh, <laughs> he really gets pissed off at Dracula because Dracula wants to bone his wife. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. I forgot about yeah. that part. I forgot yeah, about he that. He kind of makes a comment that he wants to like, you know, jump on her, and then he gets really pissed off, and that's when he's like, "All right, we're out of here." Yeah, yeah, yeah. When that's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that, uh, Billy. Like yeah. when Dracula mentioned that he supports slavery. You know, I, I remember yeah. that conversation in the beginning. He says something like, mm-hmm. slavery has its merits, which is horrible, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is horrible. Yeah. The The prince is obviously miffed, but he just politely mm-hmm. excuses himself. I think it's time to take our leave. But then, like you say, Dracula goes further and he mm-hmm. insults the prince's wife or insults the prince <laughs> by saying that, oh, you know, I would gladly purchase your wife <laughs> you know, yeah. from you. Oh, man. And then, yeah, you're right. Then don't. You know, you can challenge slavery, but don't, cha- you know, challenge the a man's right to his women. <laughs> so, yeah, leave the guy's wife out of it. Jeez. Damn, I remember that now. It's all coming back <laughs> to me. So very similar origin re- readers to Blackula. I'm really mm-hmm. thinking Gerber must have watched Blackula when he came up with this origin. But, you know, oh, then, yeah. obviously, like I mentioned in the synopsis, Billy, um, uh, the papyrus that Dr. Scarab is reading, it, it chronicles the, the origin nicely and um i i really love the fact that you know when nkantu eventually uh, rebels and he gets all these slaves to fight he kills the king he mm-hmm. hurls his spear at the balcony uh, of the temple and uh, he impales aram set the pharaoh so yeah. nkantu has taken him out then he's about to kill nephris horribly in his own words he says 
Um, I'm going to kill you as no man has ever been killed before. Slowly. <laughs> so painfully. <laughs> You'll suffer as my people have suffered. <laughs> which is great. Which is a great bit of uh, dialogue there between them. But then Nephris gets the better of him with his magics or with his alchemy. And then, Billy, they crucify him. Right? Sort of. You know, on this giant X-shaped cross. And yeah. then um, Nkantu is subjected to this process of mummification. But this process, in fact, does not kill you. It it makes you immortal, you know, mm -hmm. through this elixir uh, that uh, Nephris has perfected. Um, yeah. But it does have so, some kind of side, side effect. You know, I think uh, rigor mortis does set in, you know, yeah. um, and then you, you can't move. You become like stone. And then, you know, he is, um, you know, immobile and they put him in this uh, sarcophagus for all time. Uh, so, you know, that's very terrifying because, um, I mean, do you remember what happened in Blackula when they entombed him alive? And then they even went so far as to entomb his wife still living with him yeah. in the movie, right? That was pretty scary, mm -hmm. right? The same yeah. thing happens here. Sans the wife, <laughs> obviously. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you really feel the, the claustrophobic effect, you know, when they put the mummy in the sarcophagus, right? I mean, I was like yeah. uh, breathing a little bit faster there. Not that I'm claustrophobic, but... <laughs> and then, you know, to make matters worse, the whole temple collapses on top of the, the, the sarcophagus. <laughs> wow. So, uh, overkill from the gods there. You know, they really, really <laughs> punished Olden Kantu. Um, yeah. Needlessly. So, you know, and then Dr. Scarab has finished his story, Billy, and then he goes on to, to, to say that he's, he's discovered that he's also the descendant of ne Nephris. Now, if you can trace your lineage back 3,000 years, Billy, wow. How in the heck did he do that? How in the name yeah, of oh. the gods? <laughs> yeah. That is I, just I insane. love how he says, I can, th I can, he, and this is how he explains it to, uh, uh, Ron and Janice. He says, through a line of Egyptian scientists and astrologers, is how <laughs> how he can <laughs> trace his lineage back. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, pal. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out to be true because he, he does look uh, like Nephris. I mean, you'd you'd think that three thousand years of of I mean, um, well, I'm not going to say evolution, but yeah, let's say evolution, right? Or, or yeah. intermarrying with... I mean, obviously, the Egyptians of today don't look like the Egyptians of 3,000 years ago. You know, I think, um, you know, um, archaeological finds and, and it has proven that, you know, and also evolutionary biologists have said that, no, they, they don't look the same. But this guy is the cardboard cutout of Nephris who lived 3,000 years ago. So he's even got the little beard, the goatee. Yeah. And, and, you know, then uh, he says also that he's got this uh, sort of... A strange feeling, which turns out to be this psychic connection, this rapport that he has with Nkantu, presumably mm -hmm. through supernatural means, right, Billy? Because Nkantu yeah. maybe wants revenge, but he also seeks to be cured of his condition because when he wanders into the apartment uh, where he's been led psychically, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. He wanders yeah. into Dr. Scarab's apartment and he collapses and then the first words he utters in ancient Egyptian, of course, which Dr. Scarab understands, <laughs> uh, since he's an Egyptologist, is that, you know, Scarab or, or something. No, he didn't say Scarab. Sorry. He says, Nephris, save me. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the first words he utters. So he wants Nephris to, you know, obviously restore his humanity. 
mm-hmm. which is crazy. <laughs> How's he going to yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know what? You were saying about a callback to a movie before. Now, which sequel to Hammer's Frankenstein is it where the the guy, I think it might be Revenge of Frankenstein, where he has the, the, the Frankenstein monster guy, but he's like more human looking and he busts into this like dinner party and yells, Frankenstein, help me. I thought that's the exact same thing. Oh, um, I think it's Revenge of Frankenstein. I, I think you might be right. Yeah, I think you might yeah. be right. I remember it's that. It's one that of those first now. two sequels. Yeah. 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 It might either be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Uh, it could mm-hmm. be. Uh, I'm not sure if it's. It could be the evil of Frankenstein, though. I'm not sure. It's one it. of those two. Yeah. yeah it's either yeah. evil or revenge. But there is that scene where the, the, the you yeah. know, you want to say air quotes monster because it's really not a monster. It's really just a guy that yeah. looks a little, you know, crazy. But it's uh, he he busts in and it's like a scene almost exactly like that where he busts in through a door and says, you know, it's a nephris, you know, help yeah, me, save me. Save it's Frankenstein. Me. Help me save me. Yeah. Now, Gerber <laughs> is a self-professed fan of of you know, horror movies, even though he's mm-hmm. not a horror writer per se, he, he does have a lot of horror tropes that he plays with in his writing. So he definitely must have seen that. And, you know, so it could have been one of the influences, right, Billy? Some, I mean, lots of writers yeah, are, you know, if, uh, influenced by scenes from movies and movies from their childhood. So, yeah, man, I forgot about that scene completely. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I should, I need to rewatch the, the Hammer Frankenstein films. It's been years. But uh, good point, mm-hmm. Billy. And then, you know, obviously, uh, you know, one thing I really like uh, about uh, Nephris's, well, let's call him Dr. Scarab. <laughs> Dr. Scarab's look is he actually has a scarab medallion <laughs> hanging around his neck. And then he's got this this open kind of uh, this this shirt collar that's very wide and shows his shows off his chest hair like a BG. And then he's got this BG medallion, but it's a scarab. <laughs> uh-huh. Talk about vanity. Your name is Scarab and you have a Scarab as your symbol. But, you know, Billy, this goes... part. Yeah, yeah you got to play the part. This is just one of those comic book things that we, we love and that we run with. I mean, Dr. Doom is called Victor Von Doom. <laughs> Dr. Octopus is called Otto Octavius. It, terms, it, it seems that, <laughs> you know, when they're named as children, they're destined to follow the course of what their name suggests. <laughs> you know, they, they're going to mm-hmm. be involved in. So, yeah, Scarab is no exception. So, you know, yep. um, we did like this issue, Billy, but, you know, very unfortunate that at the end, Nkantu is laid low by his own hand, you know, when he is electrocuted mm-hmm. and he steps into, I mean, this this live wire that goes, you know, um, jumping all over the place, touches the puddle of water and he collapses. But, you know, before that, there's a scene where the police can't stop him because he's completely invulnerable. And this is um, apparently a side effect of the the chemical that Nephris used on him. It sort of hardened his body to a, a type of stone-like um, substance. And then, you know, the police yeah. can't stop him, so they tear gas him. <laughs> and then there are these... You know what I'm talking about, Billy. You know what I'm talking about. There's these uh, the sequence of three panels where the tear gas is affecting him and he falls to his knees... And he holds his his head in his hands and then he looks up with this pleading, almost looks up to the heavens and the tears are streaming from his face, right? (laughs) This mummy cries. So you remember the vision? Even an android can cry. Well, in this comic, Gerber proves even a mummy can cry. (laughs) 
And then uh-huh. the, the dialogue uh-huh. is brilliant. It says that um, a weapon, this is now the tear grass he's referring to, <laughs> a weapon more cruel than even the slaver's whips because it plays havoc with the psyche, rips the masks from gut <laughs> emotions and lets the pain within show through. <laughs> So the tear gas has unlocked this guy's long repressed emotions and finally cries about it. (laughs) Oh, man, that is an amazing part of this comic book. I love that that bit of Gerberism. (laughs) Yeah, and I have it on good authority. Tear gas doesn't make you cry and it doesn't do anything to your psyche or emotions. It just makes you cough, want to throw up and feel awful. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't take the name too literally there, Steve. <laughs> Tear gas. <laughs> wow. But but what a great uh, image from Rich Buckler when he cries. And then later on when he electrocutes himself. You know, the way his body sort of arches backwards and... Contorts, yeah. Contorts. It's brilliant. So well done, Rich Buckler, on, on you know, uh, evoking these scenes and um, great art throughout. You know, basically, the only white guys that that show up in this comic billy are the police who aren't actually supposed to be white because i mean this is yeah cairo (laughs) they're supposed to be i mean unless the british decided to send in some white police officers to show the the egyptians how it's done (laughs) i can't believe that these white guys are police but anyway janice and um what's his name roy the anthropologists who are the assistants of dr scarab Oh, Ron, yeah. Ron, Ron sorry. Ron, yeah. Ron and Janice. They are sort of, well, uh, in Gerber's own words, in an interview I read this, they were intended to be sidekicks to Nkantu. Not sidekicks, but, you know, hangers on, supporters who sort of, you know, um, are there to, to pull his fat from the fire every now and then when he doesn't understand, you know, what he's confronted with in the 20th century. And, you know, um, that was sort of um, very popular at the time. I mean, at the same time, you had Jim Wilson as the Hulk's sidekick instead of Rick Jones. You know, so they were slowly trying to introduce black characters, you know, as supporting characters. You know, the Falcon with Captain America Mm -hmm. is also a good example. Hoping that later on they would be able to, you know, establish... uh, black characters that were more you know in their own titles and and helming their own you know uh series um i mean yeah. the black ca- uh, the black panther is obviously the exception i mean he he was popular right from the very beginning but they tried to do that with other black characters so you know um uh these two these sidekicks of nkantu i think i, I quite like them you know they were mm-hmm. very compassionate and they were more understanding and they were always pleading on his behalf and trying to understand him and Dr. Scarab's more like a bastard, you know, like, let's just kill this guy while he's lying on my floor, you know, <laughs> stinking up my linoleum. Let's empty this gun into him, you know. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's not a sidekick at all. He's kind of the protagonist, <laughs> uh, the, the enemy of Nakantu, you know, but, yeah. you know, I like the two side characters. So, yeah, Billy, uh, great issue. Like I say, I liked it. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your final verdict on how events yeah, played I, out? Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and you know, we discussed right before we started recording how Rich Buckler, you know, he's more suited for superheroes, but I think he did a pretty good job here. And I do like, uh, the inks by Frank Sciaramonte as well. Mm. I don't have a ton of books that have his inks in them, but the ones that I do have, I, I quite enjoy them. And they're on, you know, a myriad of different pencilers. 
And uh, so I, I enjoy him. So, you know, give some credit to him too. Mm, yeah, it's good that you mentioned him. I forgot about him. Yeah. His inks go a long way in making this issue what it is. So yeah. great art, uh, great story by Gerber. And, and like you say, it is very reminiscent of the Hammer and uh, before that, the Universal Mummy story. But mm -hmm. there are also differences that make it stand out. You know, for, for one thing, this guy is a giant, right, Billy? He's not, yeah. you know, the Boris Karloff. Even though Boris Karloff was kind of uh, large in stature, this guy takes the cake. You know, Nkantu is eight feet tall. He towers over everybody he meets. He's literally a giant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's one of the different things. His imposing frame is more muscular than the one I associate with Boris Karloff uh, as the mummy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the whole slave angle with him being a black African, that is revolutionary in and of itself. You know, a black character um, in his own title. Well, supernatural thrillers being, you know, the mummy's title uh, from this point forward, except for the headless horseman showing up in the next <laughs> issue. So very, you know, I, I really um, commend Steve Gerber for, for doing this and all the other things he did in Marvel. So typical Gerber comic, full of mm -hmm. great scenes. But we'll get into that when we do Bronze Age Brilliance, right, Billy? So yep. um, let's go uh, straight on into our next comic, which is uh, going to be summarized by you, Billy. Mm -hmm. Dead of Night. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, so we have Dead of Night, number 11, from 1975. Script by Scott Edelman. Pencils and inks by Rico Rival. Colors by Glennis Ween. And letters by Marcus Peleo. And the cover is by <laughs> Gil Kane, oh! penciled, but Bernie writes and inks. That's right. That's right. So yeah. Bernie redeems yeah. Gil. No, no, no. I'm not going to oh, say sure. that. Come on. I love, no, I love Gil Kane's covers. I love Gil <laughs> Kane's covers. Like I've said before, Gil Kane is a great cover artist. <clears throat> yeah, for yeah. sure. Agreed. Agreed completely. So Bernie obviously does have you know a lot to do with this cover, though, like you mentioned. But we'll mm -hmm. talk about that just now. For sure. Okay, so our story begins already in progress as some cultists break into a warehouse. They shoot the night watchman and attempt to steal a scarecrow painting. But before they can locate it, the scarecrow himself shows up and kills them. Next, we see an auction house taking bids on the very painting from the previous scene. Later that night, the painting's new owner, Jesse, his brother and girlfriend, are accosted by the cultists that initially tried to steal the painting. The cultists have them bound to sacrificial altars, but just before the main man can plunge the knife, something busts through the glass ceiling. It's the scarecrow himself, and he arrives and is ready to exact retribution on the cultists. All right, Herman, I'm going to stop right there because we need to just get into this right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. This this story has a gruesome ending, you know, fitting for mm -hmm. October listeners, because this is really the most horrific of the two issues we're discussing in terms of, you know, just sheer fear that you feel, I think. Yeah. Because you don't know. I mean, you feel sympathy for the mummy, you know, in the living mummy um, that we just talked yeah. about. But for, for here, you don't know where the scarecrow is coming from you know nothing about him you just he just turns up and kills people randomly uh, in the yeah. beginning so i was thinking villain hero both 
I, I didn't know where it was coming from. So this is for me really like a venture into the unknown, venturing into the unknown. So um, yeah, scary, scary comic for sure. And think about Billy, like how many uh, horror stories and movies have you seen with paintings coming to life? I mean, most recently in uh, Stephen King's uh, the remake of It volume uh, It uh, the first movie um, three years ago, there was this scene where this painting of this woman, this woman chomps down on this kid's face. I was like, ah, you know. So yeah, <laughs> paintings coming to life. You know, oh, I I love those stories, but they it really disturbs me because how Billy, you've been in people's houses where they have these portraits of of folks hanging on the walls and. Some of them look really, really eerie and creepy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that is definitely something that, that does raise <coughs> my, you know, the hairs on my, the back of my neck in stories. So, so yeah. really now, uh, we've spoken about the cover. Um, I, I really like this cover. Oh, um, it's incredible. I do. I, okay, I'm going to, I can't really pick between the two covers. The Mummy's cover was amazing. You know, um, this cover is just as great. I think the mommy mommy's cover was a little bit too busy, though. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of background. There's a lot of people in the background, a lot of folks, a lot of text. Here there's less text, but mm-hmm. um, the effect is just as striking. You know, you have this scarecrow yeah. attacking this robed guy. Um, so you don't know if he's he's going to be, you know, the antagonist or the protagonist. You're, you're not sure. So this cover is more of a horror type of cover where you... You're not sure mm-hmm. what you're going to get inside the comic. Yeah, I mean, the colors really pop on this cover, too. Yeah. True. You know, it was a little more... The other cover was a little more... Muted. Not monot- not not muted. Yeah, maybe muted. Not, I was going to say monotone. Not monotone, but yeah, a little more muted. It wasn't. Mm. It didn't pop like this. This cover with the, the moon in the background. Yeah, green, blue, yellow, red, and it all comes together beautifully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a comic book cover, this works. I think the... The, the cover to Supernatural Thrillers with the Living Mummy, that would have worked great as a, as a cover of a novel or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still a great comic book cover. But this one's definitely, you know, it, it sort of arrests the eye, right, Billy, mm-hmm. better than yeah. the, the previous cover. So great work, Gil. You know, um, this is one of the, 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 the times you, you know, I can't really find any fault in, in, your, in Gil's art. And, um, you know, just the fact that I said that, Billy, probably like cost us a couple of listeners <laughs> again. <laughs> Please come back. But, you know, Gil Kane, obviously a legend in comic book art. It's just, you know, he doesn't do it for me. But his covers are amazing. And then, obviously, Bernie Wrightson. How can you go wrong with him? Yeah, you can't. <laughs> yeah. Now, Bernie Wrightson, he, he did ink other folks quite a lot. But I don't think his style overpowered Gil's here. Which, which is a good thing because you you know you see kind of um, a little bit of both of the, the those great artists in this cover, right, Billy? Well, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you like we've talked about Gil Kane before. He's a great cover artist, but when you look at his covers compared to his interiors, you know you can definitely see an interior face of his, and you know it's Gil Kane right away, for better or for worse. You know whatever your opinion is on it. But some of his covers, depending on who inked him, I think the ones where, you know, you can see the inker's work, you know, on top of his, and it's a good mix together, those are the best covers as well. And this is one of them for me. I mean, I can't think of what number it is, but there's a Tomb of Dracula uh, cover. I'm not sure. It might have been Gil Kane that penciled that, but I know I'm pretty sure Bernie did the inks over somebody on one of those as well. And it's a really good-looking cover. 
Right, right, right. I'm trying to think. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with that cover soon. But I, I know they've, they've had a couple of wins, you know, uh, uh, in terms of the cover department. They've, you know, there's so many great ones. In fact, we should, we should do a post of that on Into the Weird, Billy, on the website where we have like the greatest Bronze Age horror covers or something. Something I've yeah. been thinking about, but that's going to take a while to put together. But let's do something like that. And, you know, uh, another thing about the cover, Billy, is it gives you everything you want if, if, if you're a horror fan. I mean, uh, just the, the text alone. It says, a fearsome night prowler versus a centuries-old cult of blood. <laughs> fires of rebirth, fires of death. But then, you know, I think Marvel, they're a little bit presumptuous. I mean, this is the very first appearance of the Scarecrow. And already <laughs> they slap this, this bit of text on it where it says, all new Marveldom's number one shock star. <laughs> <laughs> dude what about dracula what about man thing i mean this comic was published in 1975 right whereas the yeah. living mummy was in 1973 so um i mean they had a lot of horror characters who were shock stars at this point in time morbius even <laughs> come on yeah <laughs> but you know well you know yeah there there was no no loss of or no short of Short, hyperbole shortage. at Marvel, oh, yeah. yeah, in the 1970s oh, and 60s. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised it says no, that. No, you're right. You're right. That's that's something we've come to expect of them. So in fact, if it wasn't on the cover, I would have been surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd be like, what's going on here? Where's yeah. the, the typical, you know, that and alliteration is you, you got to have it. Yeah, that's that's right. Now um, another thing before we stop talking about the cover, don't you like the fact? Okay, he's choking this cultist, right? The guy's yeah. tongue is protruding from his <laughs> mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that looks yep. so cool. Oh, yep. man. Great. Great. That could have been Bernie. could have been Gil. Who knows? But yep. um, so a brilliant cover. And then we should mention to the readers, Billy, for those unfamiliar with uh, the Scarecrow, his name was later changed to the Straw Man. Because yep. as you know, DC has a Scarecrow as well. And that Scarecrow, mm -hmm. the enemy of Batman, he was actually created by, I think it was uh, Bill Finger and Bob Kane, in the early 1940s, you know, so it, that might have had something to do with the fact that they eventually changed the name of this character, the Scarecrow, to, uh, you know, the Straw Man. Yeah, I'll have to do some digging there because I'm not sure why they did that, because then they came out with another character called the Scarecrow shortly after that anyway. So oh, yeah, I don't true. know what they were. I don't know what they were thinking there. That's true. Yeah, listeners, this is just our, you know, uh, this is just conjecture. This is not, you know, fact. Mm -hmm. We don't really know why they changed the name. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it might have something to do with DC, but I'm not sure. It could. So, I mean, that guy that's the Scarecrow, like, late 80s, early 90s, um, he was in a really good uh, a story. We'll talk about it one of these Halloweens. You and I, it's one of my favorite Halloween uh, stories. It's Captain America and Ghost Rider against that Scarecrow guy. And it's really oh, good. Bloody. and I remember. Oh, Lee, I have that somewhere. Lee yeah. Weeks. Yeah, Lee Weeks art. Mm. Oh, it's really good. It's it's brutal, man. It is like bloody and brutal. And woo, it's nasty. Awesome. And now we'll have to talk about that on uh, maybe Long Box yeah. of Darkness. <laughs> yes. Yep, yep, yep. Magazines and Monster. <laughs> yep. So, um, Billy, then we get into the issue now. I love the look of these cultists because on the cover you yes. see a cultist just looking human. He's just got a you know a hood and he's got the robes. But then the first page, as you open the comic, you've got these cultists wearing these goat-like masks. Now this yeah. is reminiscent of the demon Baphomet. If mm -hmm. if you if you know like do you remember the the Hammer film that the Devil Rides Out, where yes. you know they have Baphomet actually appearing. 
this is like him, you know, they're, they're these goat-like, um, mm-hmm. you know, masks that make them look like Baphomet. So they, they break into this um, museum or this storage house and they want to steal this painting of the scarecrow because actually, Billy, this is the cult of Kalumai. And mm-hmm. the painting of the scarecrow, uh, the image of the scarecrow actually conceals the image of Kalamai, which looks exactly like Baphomet. He's a, um, he's got a humanoid form, his a body, mm-hmm. you know, torso and and the like. But his head itself is the head of a goat, mm-hmm. and with these red eyes. So they want to steal the painting because, in fact, the painting is a portal to the realm of Baphomet. So if they can somehow, yeah, you know, perform a ritual where they sacrifice a victim. Uh, preferably a female, <laughs> as it turns out, <laughs> they will open this portal and Baphomet will enter uh, and presumably rule the earth once more. So the only thing stopping him is, of course, as you know, the Scarecrow. You know, he's seemingly, yeah. you know, uh, blocking this portal with his own image on this painting. But, you know, Billy, don't you think that their murder of this uh, museum security guard is is quite gruesome? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously this guy's advanced in years. You know, he's 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 a bit yeah. of an older guy. You know, he's an, an old guy working as a security guard, and then they just plug him. They just perforate him with bullets. Chapow, chapow, chapow. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, yeah. They light him up. Yeah, man. I mean, they they even insult him first. You know, he he can't draw mm-hmm. his gun fast enough, and this cultist just is that right, Grandpa? <laughs> and then they blast him. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> And don't you think the way he dies is is quite cool? He he falls against the wall and slowly sinks down, you know, into mm-hmm. death. And then it turns out he fell against the painting of the scarecrow that they're looking for, mm-hmm. which then comes to life and murders them in a in in a gruesome way. So it seems oh, yeah. it seems like the scarecrow is you know endowed with all the supernatural abilities you'd expect from a monster, right? He's got super strength. He's immune to bullets. Um, and then he also seems to have this, okay, he has, he's got speed. And then there's a bit of a, a dated reference there, Billy, where, <laughs> uh, did, did you read this? Where, um, uh, let me find it. Sorry. Sorry. I'm looking through the comic here, uh, listeners. Um, they say that in the narration, <clears throat> the caption box says, then with a speed belying the grace of Rudolf Nureyev, <laughs> if not quite the beauty <laughs> A completely unharmed <laughs> scarecrow rushes forward, and then he kills the guy, <laughs> Rudolf yeah. Nureyev. Right. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, talk about, you know, a dated reference. Uh... Now, you know, I, I forgot to to uh, tell the listeners. Now, if for those who don't know, Rudolf Nureyev was a Soviet ballet dancer and a choreographer. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> basically, probably famous at the time, probably in the news at the time, right, Billy? Which. Yeah. Must have been the reason why, you know, Scott Edelman put it in there. Who knows why? You know, he might have been watching Nureyev on TV. <laughs> yeah, there was a oh, crap. There was a movie made about that guy. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was a pretty famous movie. Really? Uh, crap. Let me see. I, I'll I'll take a peek here. Go ahead. I'll just I'll I'll look here quick. Okay. Um. So basically, you know, you've got this great bit of uh, exposition as the scarecrow tears through these cultists and then protects the painting. And then we, we Billy, we, we see this great splash page with uh, Enter the Scarecrow as its title and the scarecrow sort of uh, grinning in the...
way and laughing he 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 and for some reason <laughs> he's in a circle of flame which according yeah. to wikipedia is his only weakness <laughs> <laughs> and yet the name of this comic is you know um as we alluded to on the cover uh fires of rebirth fires of death so there's a lot of fire yeah. that shows up in this comic but it never actually does anything to harm the scarecrow and and he sort of the spontaneously manifests this flame <laughs> mm-hmm. and then yeah. you know a great bit of writing by scott edelman on that splash page of, of the scarecrow you know dangling these dead cultists in his hands uh edelman says any sane man would look silently on the scene unable to laugh and wonder perhaps what's the joke <laughs> <laughs> the scarecrow is the only one who's laughing, but there is no joke to be seen other than he murdered yeah. these two cultists. Mm-hmm. But then a couple of great panels too, when we get into this auction, right, Billy, the, the next scene yeah. where um, the Duncan brothers, uh, Jess and David and, mm-hmm. and uh, Jess's girlfriend, Harmony, who's quite a little bit of a spitfire. Oh yeah. Yeah. She holds her own in, in, in a few instances in this comic. They bid mm-hmm. on this uh, painting for of the scarecrow, and then they're almost outbid by this guy with uh, Gregor Rovic, right? So he wants mm-hmm. to outbid them, but he can't because it turns out uh, Jess's brother Duncan, he's he's yeah, he's a reporter or a, ma- a writer for a magazine, but he's uh, you know quite capable of 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 you know independent action. He doesn't follow the lead of his brother. He literally stumbles over to this Rovic guy, and just as Rovic is about to to come up with another, you know, um, ridiculous amount that's going to definitely make it difficult for Jess to acquire this painting, Dave stumbles into Rovic, and you know, and he knocks the wind out of his sails. <laughs> He's unable to bid. I thought that part's brilliant. Uh-huh. I'm terribly sorry, sir. Here, let me help you up. Going once, going twice, gone, <laughs> sold for six thousand one hundred dollars. Which so, is kind of funny if you think about it, because at an auction, sometimes they do want to move very quickly. But if they see two people going back and forth, they're going to keep it going as long as they can to make the most money they can. So they're right. not just going to be like, oh, 10 seconds has gone by. We're good here. That's not how it's going to work. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. But, you know, I love this this bit of weirdness. Now, this is Billy. Yeah. This is one of the, the things you probably thought about when earlier in the show you mentioned that this issue is all over the place it's so strange it's so weird you just have to suspend your disbelief and just go with it uh-huh. you know so um uh the mummy didn't have a lot of that the, like i said the storytelling was more uh sane if i can put it like that which is weird for gerber to to write a a coherent and linear story like he did in the mummy issue but here scott eelman like you say is just going all wackadoodle <laughs> yeah uh-huh. And then, I mean, think about it, Billy. They're in their apartment, in Jess's apartment, in Soho. So this guy's quite well off uh, in New York. And then um, you'd think that an apartment like this, someone would call the cops when a horde of masked cultists just break down the doors of your Soho apartment and then mm-hmm. just uh, start, you know, knocking people about and, and stealing the painting and kidnapping Harmony. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's another part that stretches believability a bit. Yeah. But they do show up in full, you know, cultist regalia in their robes and their masks and looking Mm -hmm. very bestial. 
and they knock out Jess and um, you know eventually they also knock out Dave but not before Harmony proves herself to be quite a fighter and then she she brains a guy with a lamp <laughs> <laughs> and and before you know trying to to well just before she's kidnapped for sacrificial purposes which she knows because they the cultists are fond of explaining what they're going to do to her Harmony is yeah. not phased at all, right? She says, uh, uh, guys, can I get any of you something to eat <laughs> before they haul her off? <laughs> so she's quite cool under pressure. She's way, she can handle herself way better than either of the guys. <laughs> That's right, man. They were taken out lickety split. But, you know, then uh-huh. uh, we cut to the cultist's lair. Now, one of the guys, <laughs> either Jess or Dave, I'm, I'm thinking it's Dave, he stumbled out of the apartment after them and he must have been the one who followed them to their hideout because later on we learned that the brothers sort of miraculously just happens upon the secret hideout, right? But that happens yeah. later, Billy. Before that, so I'm thinking that was maybe Dave who followed them even, you know, all disoriented and, and suffering from head wounds or whatever as he as he must have been at the time. But the cultists, yeah. uh, the the uh, priest, the, the leader of this cult turns out to be Gregor Rovic, the guy who who wanted to uh, buy the painting, yeah, from the auction house yeah. that got hit in the guts. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and he, you know, <laughs> spars a bit verbally, spars with uh, with um, Harmony as she's chained to this altar, this sacrificial <laughs> altar, and then she spits in his face. <laughs> now, Billy, I want you to tell us the dialogue. Just talk about this dialogue; it's it's incredible. Yeah, he looks at her and says, "I'm sorry, my dear." But as they say, one cannot make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. She spits in his face and says, you slime sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. his response is, tisk tisk. yours was going to be a painless death, but now I think that I shall rather enjoy the deed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. And, and, you know, in the background, you can see some of his uh, goat-headed minions tearing the scarecrow yeah. painting you know, the scarecrow cover off of the painting and revealing yeah. Calamai. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> Billy, oh man, this is brilliant. He's even got that kind of sacrificial dagger that's all twisted like a snake's uh-huh. body. You know, it's it, it's mm-hmm. all twisted and it, it looks like when it pierces your body, it's going to do something horrible to your innards. <laughs> and he's about to plunge that into harmony when smash through the skylight comes hurtling the scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> and get laughing. this laughing he 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 but accompanied Billy by a murder of crows uh, <laughs> literally mm-hmm. as like crows uh, you know uh, millions of them just attacking yeah. these cultists tearing them to shreds <laughs> and then it turns out that the the scarecrow has kind of like a ghost rider like glare where he like almost like the pen and stare, but he can't yeah. call forth the demons, but he can paralyze you with fear um, mm-hmm. with his eyes. And then while you're paralyzed, he murders you because yeah. literally he punches and punches these guys, bludgeons them to death while they're paralyzed with fear. And the, the narration reads as follows. It says that <clears throat> uh, uh, people cannot tear, tear their gazes from the deathly visage, even as its owner quickly ends their misspent lives. You know, so these guys don't, they're not sugarcoating here, uh, sugarcoating it. He's murdering them. He's killing all of these cultists. Well, they so richly deserve their death, but yeah. still, this is not oh, yeah, yeah. your typical Marvel yeah. horror hero. <clears throat> so, 
Yeah. Billy, then the, the ending, I, I want you to, ta- to talk about this, speak on it, because the ending is amazing. <laughs> what yes, happens to I you? Get, uh, he somehow, I, I'm assuming this is the scarecrow doing this. Yeah. He somehow backs the, uh, the head cultist or high priest or whatever he is, you know, up against uh, like, a, or I shouldn't say up against, but near like a uh, mangled, gnarled looking tree. And the tree comes to life and grabs the guy and just strangles him and just breaks his body <laughs> into pieces. <laughs> exactly. It's very frightening looking. That is a very scary death at the end there. And, um, you know, because uh, he had chased the cultist out of his manor or out of the mansion where the cultists live. And then the guy, yeah. strangely enough, was trying to flee with Harmony's unconscious form, unconscious body. Now... How had Harmony been rendered unconscious, Billy? Because she was still wide awake just before she was sacrificed, and then the Scarecrow appeared to save her. So somehow, during that time, Harmony had been rendered unconscious. This guy must have must have clocked her or something, Rovic. Yeah. And then he absconded with her body. He ran away across these fields, you know, next to his home, and then ran up against, mm-hmm. like you say, these two dead trees. Yeah. But the reason why he was running away with Harmony's body is he still hoped that by killing her, he could bring back Kalamaya and complete the ritual. Yeah. But it turns out that that's not the case because a branch of one of these dead trees literally slaps the dagger from his <laughs> from his hand. <laughs> and then he, he turns around to see what, what this was. And then he screams, no! And this the, the branches of the, this dead tree just seizes him and uh, tears him apart. Now, Billy... A frightening bit of narration to end this, uh, you know, this gruesome scene of death. It says that three days from now, the police will find the body of Gregor Rovic. Every bone will be broken. Not one muscle will be untorn. Not one organ unruptured. Wow! Now that that image of him being all twisted and and mangled in the in the branches of that tree that looks like a Bernie Wrightson image to me. That looks nasty. That that, that whole ending to the story reminds me of something you would have seen in an EC comic, you know, yes. pre uh, Wortham Crusade. Mm, good good point there. Yes, definitely, definitely something you won't well, expect to see in a Bronze Age no. comic where the comic code is still asserting some authority, even though they were challenging it at this point. But um, a great image, amazing image. And then the mm-hmm. Scarecrow sort of wanders off into the moonlight with the body of Harmony. And he places her back on the altar. And then she's found by Jess and Dave. Um, yeah. And that leads me to wonder, like, how did they find the secret hideout? Did they just look up Gregor Rovic in the Yellow Pages? Or <laughs> uh, did they suspect it was him? I don't know. But it must have been one of them that followed the cultists, you know. Like we yeah. were told earlier. Um, but, you know, for a while there, Billy, the first time I read this comic way back when, I don't know, what, 20 years gone, I thought one of them might have been the Scarecrow, either David or Jess. Because yeah. why else would um, Scott Edelman have that aside where one of the, the brothers who had just been knocked unconscious, where he slowly gets up and, and sort of staggers after the cultists to have kidnapped Harmony. That's why I thought, yeah. like, like, is he, why? Why did they show that? So I thought maybe he went to change into his scarecrow regalia yeah because you never actually see that the scarecrow disappearing from the painting you know it, it no. you never see that so it's not like he literally steps out of the painting and then the painting is blank 
You know, yeah. he just appears. So I thought maybe one mm -hmm. of them might have been the Scarecrow. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, you, know. you get a little bit more clarification in the next two issues of, like, because they basically use this as a springboard to go to another issue and then another issue. Yeah, so you, you do see a lot more of that in those next two issues. You know, they do try to explain a little bit more what he's all about and how he, you know, gets around. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. But we'll leave that for another episode because... I don't know about you, Billy, yeah. but I want to talk more Scarecrow in the future. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's amazing. But also Living Mummy. I mean, listeners, we're by no means done with the Living Mummy uh, because the, the issues following on in supernatural thrillers are suitably wacky. And um, just like yeah. the Scarecrow issues that we're going to be talking about in the future are suitably weird. Definitely mm -hmm. um, our fair that we like to talk about. So, Billy, that's it for, uh, I think, discussions, unless you, you have some final thoughts about the Scarecrow issue. No, and just to say that, yeah, it's it's definitely worth it, man. Both of these issues definitely are, but like we said, we probably favor this one a little bit better, and maybe just out of our, you know, pure morbid <laughs> fascination, more, uh, more, yeah, yeah, morbid <laughs> thoughts here, and just how it's just it's it's one of these stories that it reminds me almost slightly of a Gerber story where there are so many random elements in it. If you just wrote all these elements down on a piece of paper and gave it to somebody, they would say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Don't ever write this story. But when it's put, you know, pen to paper and in a comic book with illustrations, it's a ton of fun. And it, it, it does somehow, you know, come together to make a coherent story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it, buddy. I can't say it any better than you just did. So there is something about this comic that just does it for me. And I had more mm -hmm. fun reading this than the mummy comic, but both of them were suitably excellent. So, um, Listeners, that's it for our two comics um, on this very first episode of our October Halloween cast. But you can expect two more episodes chronicling Marvel horror-related titles. But for now, Billy, I think we can get straight into Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps, our next segment. So listeners, we're going to take a small break. Uh, don't go away and we'll be back. Oh, no. No, please. Right, Billy, we're back uh, with Bronze Age Brilliance, Mighty Marvel Missteps. What was your Bronze Age Brilliance for both of these issues, um, Supernatural Thrillers and Dead of Night? For me, Supernatural Thrillers number five, the, the brilliance for me was I have to give all the credit in the world to Steve Gerber for having a comic book essentially with nothing but minority characters. I mean, it's... That was, I don't know how much you were seeing of that back in 1973, but he pretty much did it in this comic, like we said earlier, except for a couple of random cops being white in Egypt, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> but all the main characters in this book, you know, there's, you know, what, three, four, four or five of them. It's even if you count the two Israeli people in the beginning, it's, it's all, you know, all, uh, you know, minorities, you know, non-Americans, whatever you want to say, you know, and that was... When you sit back and think about that, that's that's a big deal. I think it is anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I was going to go with the same one, Billy. But, uh, you know, uh, the last time we did Bronze Age Brilliance in a previous episode, I went with the exact same 
Bronze Age brilliance is you. So I'm going to try to do something a little bit different here. Now, that is definitely revolutionary. So well done, Steve Gerber, on having this whole cast of, you know, minority characters. And he even champions, you know, um, uh, the, the agency of women, you know, in, yeah. in this issue as well. But, um, you know, I'm going to go with how Gerber made the mummy his own. You know, how he tweaked it to be different from the origin of the mummies, the, the mummy that we had seen in the Universal films and in the Hammer films. Um, mm. And in fact, you know, uh, mummies in general, you know, it's a slave. So there you have that Afrocentric um, notion, uh, which Gerber ch uh, championed. Um, you know, but it also speaks to a wider, you know, um, base if you think about it and to an, a wider issue billy like slavery has always been around it even exists in yeah. some form today and yeah. this is not just gerber championing the cause of minorities this is him saying that <clears throat> you know slavery itself is is sort of the 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 origins of racism you know it, it might be seen as that you know and yeah. um and uh, the fact that he used a, a slave an enslaved prince you know, as um, as his protagonist, that that of course speaks more to what you liked about it, and me too. But I'm going to go with the fact that that is a suitably um, original origin for a character like the Mummy, <clears throat> and um, I like the fact that Gerber did that. He didn't just straightforward go with the typical um, uh, origin that characters like the Monster of Frankenstein in the Marvel comics had, and of course Dracula too. He completely created a new Mummy character. You know, um, and I think uh, I can commend him for that. So the way he tweaked the mummy's origin um, is is what I'm going to go for. So very similar to what you liked. So Billy, um, what about uh, Dead of Night, the Scarecrow issue? What's your Bronze Age brilliance there? So for me, that is, there's only one thing for me there. Brilliant is the absolute randomness of the entire story. <laughs> it, it's it's brilliant because it somehow makes oh, sense oh in the end. God. It's just, it's 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 crazy it's it's crazy like we said it, it doesn't make sense but then you read the story and you know hey maybe uh rico rival it needs to be allotted for that as well because you know you have scott edelman put pen to paper but the illustrations added in there maybe if this was a pro story we'd be scratching our heads thinking this is the dumbest thing i've ever read <laughs> but because of the illustrations you know it really brings it all together but the random the randomness of this is is incredible i love it it's why i love the bronze age <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, good point, Billy. Good point. I'm gonna go with the art as well, uh, Rico Rival. Um, I really love his art. Um, um, all of the Marvel horror art that he did in the early '70s, also on the magazines, you know, the mm -hmm. Marvel Monster magazines. It it was always a standout for me. No matter if he had a, a, yeah. a bad inker or not, m more often than not, he had great inker. So, um, no, I I dig his art. And um, you know, then uh, also <coughs> Billy, uh, something I should mention, which also uh, pertains to the the mummy issue um the monster tropes that they play with in these two issues are great so kudos to St scott edelman for that i mean if you think about it in the mummy issue uh, steve gerber had you know the the horror of entombment you know being buried alive which which comes from mm -hmm. from you know uh, old horror stories like edgar Allan poe's the black cat stuff like that you know yeah. so that's definitely a fear and and it became a modern horror trope uh, being buried alive and then also you have the monster rampage you know that's in the pages of the mummy that's a horror trope coming from frankenstein and from the old universal films 
Um, but then when you get to the Scarecrow issue um, in Dead of Night, you have the more modern horror tropes, which is the, the living painting, which we spoke about earlier, Billy. Mm-hmm. You know, there had up until this time been a number of horror stories and, um, and uh, tales written about malevolent paintings. And, um, and then also you have, uh, you know, just the look of the Scarecrow himself. Uh, and he reminded me very much of one of your favorite Bronze Age villains, the Tatterdemalion. <laughs> Just the hat, the scarf, the wild-eyed look. Uh-huh. Even though they're they're very dissimilar, actually, you know, uh, the Scarecrow d- does have that very distinct look, and I I do like that. And of course, then you know, he also reminds me a bit of the monster in Jeepers Creepers, which is a, oh, yeah. a bit of a horror franchise. Um, yeah. But I would go so far as to say that the Scarecrow is even more frightening than that Jeepers Creepers monster. Yeah. So both of them have these Scarecrow-like, uh, you know, appearances. Um, yep. So the art definitely is my Bronze Age brilliance uh, and also how, um, you know, Rico Revelle portrayed these monster tropes through his art. Mm. So uh, amazing, amazing oh. uh, two issues. And then, Billy, what about... Uh, was there anything you disliked uh, uh, in terms of Mighty Marvel missteps? Well, there's only one thing that really bothered me about Supernatural Thrillers number 5, and you lightly touched on it um, after you did your synopsis. The part where the mummy makes his way to <laughs> Dr. Scarab's apartment, <laughs> and he comes in and collapses, but then asks for help. And, you know, Dr. Scarab, you know, a man of science... His first thing is, oh, I'll help him, and picks up a gun, and he's going to, like, put a bullet in his head. And I'm thinking, really? A man of science? Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, especially since there were, the mummy was not at all antagonistic towards them. You know, no. he had rampaged earlier, and they had seen this on TV. But even yeah. that rampage wasn't really, you know, um, malevolent. It was more like, oh, mm-hmm. he's in a strange place. He was hit by a car, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, accidentally so... You know, why Why would they fear him? But apparently, you know, Dr. Um, Scarab does. <laughs> so, I mean, his two assistants are way more sensible. You're right. That part just didn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's only one, you know, page. But that, other than that, nothing else really bothered me all that much. But that really did. That was the one thing I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's dumb. Because, again, he's not just some street thug he's a, a man of science education mm. what you're mm. oh, i'm just gonna shoot him in the head oh, come on man no way yeah, but yeah. uh dead of night the only thing is they don't really get into you know what the the scarecrow like what he's all about you know it's just it's very like out of left field him just popping out of nowhere and really between the first appearance and his second appearance in the comic you know there really isn't a whole lot of uh, detail on what he's really all about you know where he comes from and what he's all about but i know like we said they do get into it in subsequent issues like more but that's the only thing i was kind of just like eh, if i didn't have the other issues you know and just had this one i would just be like i'd have a million questions because mm-hmm. there really wasn't a whole lot answered with you know you know what he's all about like where is he in his downtime <laughs> yeah exactly i mean if yeah, if you think about, you know, supernatural thrillers with the living mummy, they did go into his origin more, making him a more sympathetic character. Um, yeah. You could even identify with him. But, um, you know, in terms of the scarecrow, he's just a cipher. You know, there's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. just the fear. It's just the horror. But 
it's kind of like you say, like an old EC horror story where, you know, the, the, the monster or the zombie or the werewolf or the vampire that kills the people, there's nothing, um, that you know about them other than this just one dimensional idea, um, that is presented. So yeah, good point there, Billy. Good point. You didn't get, they didn't really go into the scarecrow himself much. So, I mean, it was a, a little bit shorter of a story than the, the mummy supernatural thrillers, but still, I just thought, geez, you couldn't even, <laughs> they didn't really throw much of anything out there at all for you to think, oh, okay, this is why he's doing that. You know I mean? It's mm. just, you almost feel like cultists and, uh, uh, what looks like an evil scarecrow that's, you know, <laughs> killing doesn't like laughs at murder. <laughs> you think they'd be almost on the same team there, but <laughs> It just, it doesn't, you know, uh, whatever. But like I say, it does, subsequent issues, it does go into that a little bit more about what that guy's all about, which is, it's great. I love it. So That's right. We'll get to that stuff down the road. Yeah, no, no. I do I do like the Scarecrow's origin a lot, you know. Um, this whole idea of the Lords of Fear, but we'll, like mm-hmm. you say, we'll talk about that in the, um, you know, in the uh, interim. But Billy, a great concept. You know, if you think about all the great horror villains or or. Uh, horror ideas running rampant in Marvel. The Lords of Fear is one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll talk about that some more. And they we'll, also show yeah, Doctor we'll, Strange, you know, which is... I was is... going to say, yeah, we'll run into that uh, in Doctor Strange. Uh, yeah, <laughs> eventually. Nice. Can't wait to talk about that. So um, for as for me, Billy, uh, the Mighty Marvel misstep, um, specifically about uh, this issue, Dead of Night, number 11, is the fact that at the... Well, no, let me go back to the mummy first, right? I, I didn't mention yeah. my, my, my Bronze Age yeah, or yeah. My, my, my Mighty Marvel misstep. Wow, you'd think that alliteration would come easy by now for us because we're always <laughs> talking about Marvel stuff. Uh, here I'm stumbling over my words. <laughs> so in terms of Mighty Marvel missteps for, with uh, supernatural thrillers, the, the very last panel where it, it was completely unnecessary. I don't know why Gerber put it in there where... Um, Dr. Scarab suddenly has a change of heart. Rather than begging the police to destroy or cremate or find a way to dispose of this body, um, after he tried to shoot, you know, the mummy earlier in his apartment, he somehow has suddenly had a change of heart and convinces the police to hand over the body to him for further study. (laughs) Now, number one, the police would never do that. They would never. I mean, they don't even know this guy. They don't even know his credentials. Come on. Uh, and number two, you know, they'd probably have, you know, the Egyptian military would get involved and, and cart him mm-hmm. off. But, you know, yeah. um, they, they weren't involved. It was all the police, even though there was a lot of time for the military to be mobilized after the first rampage. They never showed up. And then, yeah. you know, um, somehow, you know, this Dr. Scarab just uh, takes command and then he ends up with the body. But my point is, Billy, there's no need for that. They could have just ended it there. They, they didn't have a need to finish the story with, with uh, Dr. Scarab saying, okay, I need this body. Because come the next issue, um, as we learn two issues later in Supernatural Thrillers number seven, he wakes up in a crate and he's yeah. not even in the, you know, in Dr. Scarab's possession. Yeah. You know, so why? It just, it's just unnecessary and it just it ruined it a little bit for me at the very end there. So yeah. similar to your complaint about, you know, the, the the good doctor just emptying his pistol into the body of the living mummy, this just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So um, that's my, my misstep 
with uh, the mummy issue, but with uh, Dead of Night, wow, Billy, it's hard for me to find a misstep here. Um, oh man, I, I'm I'm gonna go out on limb here and say that there's almost nothing that I that I disliked about this issue. I mean, sure, you know the the scarecrow, we don't know much about him, but you know that didn't bother me that much because I was more focused on the identities of Jess and uh, the personalities of Jess and David and Harmony. They were fleshed out really well for me. You know, yeah. you have this um, more lighthearted younger brother, David, who sort of like follows his older brother around, but he's he's his own man. And then you have uh, this brooding guy, you know, uh, Jess, Jesse Duncan, who wants this painting for some reason that we don't really find out, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this has been his lifelong quest to acquire this painting of the Scarecrow. And then you've got Harmony, who's a is a completely distinct character in her own right. You know, she's this little termagant. <laughs> I don't know what would you call her a virago, who's uh, you know a go getter. I, I I love them. So you know, the mm-hmm. scarecrow was sort of for me. He was in the background. He was a peripheral. The story didn't really revolve around him. It revolved around these three folks and this painting. And then, of course, yeah. the painting came alive and the Scarecrow shows up. So for me, I, I saw it a little bit differently than you. But So I can't really find fault with anything in this issue. It had great, you know, scenes of horror. The cult of Calamai, you know, I love them. I love their looks, even though it's a little bit deri- derivative, you know, based off of Baphomet and his cultist, which we had seen in innumerable, you know, uh, horror movies, folk horror movies in England. But yeah. um <clears throat> wow, Billy, I'm really I'm racking my brains here, but I can't come up with anything. I mean, even the dialogue's great. Scott Edelman didn't write any clunky dialogue. Um, no. So no, I I'm gonna have to, uh, you know, I can't come up with anything. Listeners, forgive me. Billy, forgive me. There's just That's nothing. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's his Edelman did a good job. It's it's very Gerber esque, and that's that's a huge compliment, you know, in yeah. my opinion. Of course. Now, listeners, don't take this to mean that it was a perfect issue for me. You know, of course, this is not my favorite issue of all time. It's just um, came at the right place at the right time for me. I wanted to read a story like this, a quick tale of horror. And this is what I got. So, you know, I'm very happy with this issue. Maybe maybe later, you know, when I'm more retrospective, I'll think about something that bothered me. But as of now, there's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Billy, that wraps it up for Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps. But we'll be back again, listeners. Don't go away. Right after the short promo break, we'll be doing Shop Talk. Grab your bat microphone. It's time to start the show. Check out the Bat Pod with your host, Bill Beer. <laughs> this was, cucumber this sandwiches. was an issue. <laughs> yes, have you ever had a cucumber sandwich? And his co-host, Joey Galvez. I mean, I like it, you know, cucumber water. Have you ever had that? It's so refreshing. It's, it's, it's... Topic of the week. I really love the Michael Keaton Batman, the Tim Burton Batman. I thought you were going to mention Batman and Robin for a minute. <laughs> you know, George Clooney had you hello or character spotlights. The condiment king was a guy named... Buddy Stanley, uh, okay. a former stand-up comedian, but, you know... Stump your co-host segments. Okay, where's your Batman card? Just go ahead and send that to me. Sorry, sorry. And we'll, and we'll rip bit. that up. <laughs> okay. You can find the Bat Pod on the nerdylegion.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Google Play, and we're now on Stitcher. The Bat Pod is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Network. 
your crime fighting collective. It's the bad pie. What the blue bacon? All right, we're back with our shop talk segment. Billy, I'm gonna hand you the reins and you can go first. Tell us what is new in the comic book and horror reading and watching world of Billy Delicious. Well, after you and I had a conversation recently, I decided to finally open up a book I've had for a long time. And it is a Marvel Essential of Moon Knight. Um, I believe it's volume two. And it has a lot of great stories in it. I just thumbed through it. And, you know, I read a couple little passages here and there quickly because you and I are going to talk about some things down the road. Mm. But it's... Uh, I think almost all of it, if not all of it, is Doug Mensch and Bill Sienkiewicz. Yes. And man, I'll tell you what, when I was younger, I would have seen certain artists and thought, oh, you know, I don't really like their art because, you know, when you're younger, sometimes you want everything to look like, you know, Marvel House style, you know, Romita or somebody like that, you know, because you think maybe that's what art's supposed to look like. That's right. But as I got older, I learned to appreciate, you know, artists even someone like Kirby, I, I learned to appreciate him more and more as I get older, too. I appreciate him more now than I ever did, and I probably might even get better. But uh, Sienkiewicz is one of those guys that, you know, when I was younger, I would have seen maybe an issue of New Mutants and thought, eh, I don't know about that. But now I love it. I saw, you know, I'm, I'm paging through this Moon Knight Essential, and his style is perfect for something like that horror or like a gritty crime book or something like that. His style is perfect for that kind of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to diving into that wholesale and just uh, really, really, really just immersing myself in that. Yeah, I believe Moon Knight's definitely on the uh, the docket for our Into the Weird you know, set list that we're going to be discussing because there's, so, like you said, there's so many weird happenings going in and out. But it's a very serious comic you know it's not like it doesn't have a lot of uh, humorous um, aspects to it where you could argue that the early mo uh, marvel monster magazines they did have some vein of humor running through them the doctor strange issues that we're so fond of right there's there's some of yeah. um you know, some parts where they poke fun at each other the writers the pencilers you know they uh, steven is often you know a very serious person but the way he treats other people you know um evinces some some laughter from me <laughs> you know just this over-the-top <laughs> arrogance and the insults but with moon knight things get pretty pretty dark pretty serious which i also like you know it's a different kind of read so we're gonna get into yeah. that just because of the antagonists the 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 enemies he faces they're so crazy and so horrifying that uh, you know we can't not discuss him in fact you know a while back billy i was considering talking about uh, my favorite Moon Knight issues, um, which I think is issue 21 to issue 24 um, of uh, Moon Knight Volume 1, where he, you know, it's Bill Sienkiewicz again and Doug Munch, where he battles the Dream Demon. And uh, those issues scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. You okay. know, um, so, wow, I wanted to do that on Long Box of Darkness, but that fell through. So we can do that on Into the Weird. Uh, listeners, so if there are any Moon Knight fans out there, let us know which uh, which issues you like and which you want us to discuss in the future, and we'll we'll give them a look see. Um, yeah, so, for sure. So disturbing some of those tales. Yeah, they look extremely dark. And if you know anything about uh, the character of Mark Spector, you know he's got a 
they really put him through the ringer. I mean, like, you know, yeah. mental things and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. So I can't wait to uh, can't wait to get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that happens a little bit later on, you know. Uh, it was hinted at back then, you know, that he had this mental instability, but that that's now become a central part of his character in, in the modern times, right, Billy? Back then, it wasn't really... Yeah. I mean, he he had many dual identities. He had many mm-hmm. identities based on the fact that he was a mercenary and, you know, he was also a, a businessman and, you know, a, a cab driver, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> he had multiple, you know, uh, personas. And yeah. um, later on, that was, you know, um, written in as what, what caused his psychotic break or, or this, um, you know, uh, psychological problem that he had where he couldn't decide, you know, who he was. And he became these distinct personalities. But back then, they didn't really have that. The horror was very external, you know, um, directed towards the enemies of Konshu, the moon god that he had to, to, to combat. But, yeah. you know, later that became internalized. And that's when things also started to take an interesting turn. So I like both iterations of Moon Knight. <clears throat> but like I say, the Sienkiewicz uh, and Munch uh, issues are still my favorite, just for nostalgic reasons. Yeah, <clears throat> cool. And then, <clears throat> Billy, in, in terms of me, I don't have a lot to report. I did uh, recently catch up on some of my new comics. Now, I'm not collecting a lot of new um, series. I, I'm still on Jason Aaron's Avengers, and I'm, I'm I've recently bought the new Thor series, King Thor number one, which I didn't read yet, but I, I have got uh, gotten caught up on Avengers. And you know, there's one thing that really bothers me. At first, I thought it was a novelty, but but now it's really starting to irk me. Okay, now the good thing about the comic is they've got two horror-based characters as um, you know on the Avengers roster, which is Blade. And the new Ghost Rider, um, Jaime Reese, I think his name is. I, I like them. I love my horror. I love Ghost Rider, even though the original Ghost Rider is still my favorite. Well, not the very original original. I mean, Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider is my favorite. But Billy, okay, Blade has recently acquired a, a sort of a helper, a friend. And it's this parasitic friend that lurks on his shoulder. Now, do you know who it is? Okay, mm-hmm. listeners, this is getting into get off my lawn territory. <laughs> We're bringing get off my lawn back for this brief complaint. Billy, it's the man thing. Yes, Blade has a patch of growth on his shoulder with the little man thing face. You know, with the roots, the tentacles hanging off of his face and the red eyes. And this little man thing symbiote you know, attached to Blade, gives him powers. Like, it can grow wings for him, you know, it can can warn him of danger, gives him extra sensory perceptions, all kinds of stuff. So it's useful. But, I mean, come on. Okay, some people out there, Man-Thing fans, say a little Man-Thing is better than no Man-Thing. But I'm not that kind of person. (laughs) Mm, I'm saying you go full-out Man-Thing or you don't go at all. (laughs) That's what I want. I don't want... This little parasitic man thing that does, doesn't even have a... He's like a pet, basically. You know, a Blade's yeah. pet. And I love Blade. Who doesn't love Blade? You know, but come mm-hmm. on. Don't, don't do that to Man-Thing. Just get off of that. Okay, this it's not as bad as R.L. Stein making Man-Thing talk and, and, and think. Uh. <laughs> that's, still, that's still the worst of the worst. But the, the most blasphemous thing ever 
in comic books. But um, you know, this is close. It's 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 close. You know, reducing him to just the role of this little hanger on, this little pet on Blade's shoulder. I hate that. So unfortunately, I, I wish they wouldn't have that. But yeah, like I say, listeners, this is me saying get off my lawn again, complaining. I don't mean to complain. <laughs> so I do believe I have prepared something positive. You know that I want the listeners to to think about but I'm going to leave that for our recommendation segment later on you know but I don't want to really I don't want to end this on a bad note so I'm I am going to say that I'm still enjoying Jason Aaron's Avengers even though I don't really see where he's going with the series at the moment but I do love the fact that he's using Ghost Rider and Blade you know he's really trying to put the Marvel horror characters to good use and you know I've never actually seen Jason Aaron write a horror title before I mean he's doing sci-fi now with a series called Sea of Stars and you know, um, but you know, and scalped that he did for Vertigo. It could be there was some horror in there, but it was more like a suspense thriller kind of thing. So I'm thinking that's one of the only genres he hasn't really full on tackled. I would love to see him do something more. Maybe write a Man Thing series with with Becky Cloonan as the artist. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. like we mentioned the other day on Twitter. But uh-huh. you know, um, I I just don't like what he's done to Man Thing. That's my only, um, you know, complaint. So I guess, Billy, that's it for Shop Talk. Um, But we'll be back with our newer segment, listeners, right after another small break. Uh, So, yeah, stay tuned. And, um, you know, uh, be patient (laughs) as we play you something interesting. (laughs) Greetings, listeners. Once again, this is Dormammu hijacking your airwaves to let you know about my bosom buddy Ragador's recommendations for this week. I'm ashamed to say that the inferior mouthpieces Billy, Delicious, and Herman Lowe are back reporting on these recommendations on our behalf. But that cannot be helped. After all, Ragador and myself refuse to learn the technical aspects of broadcasting our messages of mind control and chaotic anarchy to you puny humans. Still, reading these recommendations that we've put together for you will go a long way in ensuring that we look upon you with a smattering of favor, once the dark dimension subsumes your pathetic planet. <laughs> All right, listeners, we're back with our recommendations of Ragador, um, the segment that uh, we christened on our previous two episodes, and I think it's been going strong. Um, you know, we've gotten some good feedback from listeners about this segment, Billy, which I haven't even forwarded to you. I should. They do like the books we've recommended. Um, so I, I think we're on a roll here. So let's keep it going. <laughs> what do you have for the listeners this week? <laughs> okay, so what I have is, and I wanted to just bring this one up because I know you are a big Thor fan as well. Yes. So back in the early 1980s, you remember Marvel started doing uh, graphic novels. Yeah. 
I think they were almost monthly or every other month or something like that. It was they were very consistent with it, right? You remember those? Yes. You know, one of the most famous ones, Death of Captain Marvel by Jim Starlin. That's great. That might have been the very first one, in fact, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, true. I think it was. But they did one, um, and I think it was 1987. So, you know, a little bit outside the Bronze Age, but it's called The Mighty Thor, I Whom the Gods Would Destroy. And have you read this one? Uh, actually, no, I haven't read that. So, the, as a Thor fan, this is a bit of uh, you know shame on me. But yeah, no. I haven't read that. But I I do in fact have it. <clears throat> I don't okay. know why I never well, read you, it. Yeah, def- definitely read it. It's not. It's interesting because, you know, I like Thor. As most of the time, I would prefer to read Thor just as Thor, not you know Donald Blake, and then he's got to change into Thor. I like Thor more as just, you know, the Avenger and he's always in his Thor, you know, uh, costume and, you know, running around and beating up people like, (laughs) you know, the the trolls and stuff like that. That's what I like for my Thor. But I will say that this book, um, there really is very little action in it. It's, It's basically Thor with a crisis of conscience. And it's really good. I mean, it's the idea, you know, plot it. The plot is by, you know, uh, the infamous Jim Shooter, <laughs> ah, but it's actually, yeah, but it's actually written by uh, Jim Owsley, you know, uh, aka Christopher Priest, and then drawn by Paul Ryan, who just actually he passed away within the last year or two, I believe. Um, sadly, he was a good artist. Inked by another uh, notorious name in the comic book biz, Vince Coletta, <laughs> oh, oh. and uh, but very very good. I mean, the artwork is solid. And the story is really good. You know, Thor's on, on Earth, and he's in, you know, his Donald Blake uh, guys, and he's having a crisis of conscience, and Sif shows up to try to convince him to, you know, come back to Asgard and be the, you know, the prince that he is. And he's kind of like, no, I want to stay on Earth. And he just goes back and forth with her, and, you know, they, they almost actually, you know, have a, a moment where you think they're going to fight. Oh, it's it's really good. It's really good. And you do get some a little bit of Asgard in there, too, with odin and sif and i believe his name's the grand vizier that like uh almost like merlin looking character right 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 yeah you get a little bit of that too but it's 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 a very good read it's it's definitely worth your time well then i'm gonna have to crack it open billy i don't think i don't really know the reason why i never even though i own it i never picked it up i think it's because i bought it in a batch of stuff you know um in the early 2000s off of ebay and it's mm-hmm. like one of those things I still need to get to because much like yourself, Billy, and many of our listeners, I have a huge pile of a backlog of things I need mm-hmm. to read. And sometimes <laughs> things get lost in the mix. Yeah. You know? So I definitely have that. Now, <clears throat> I have a lot of other Thor material too, you know, which I haven't read. But, you know, basically yeah. the, the Thor that I have read is everything from the Bronze Age and then um, <clears throat> everything from the 90s, you know, from, from the modern age up up to... And then there was a brief hiatus where I stopped reading in the mid-2000s, but I still kept collecting Thor comics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the 60s I'm still working on, you know, because I just have the Omnibuy. I don't have the issues. Obviously, they're very hard to get, to get the single issue. So I'm reading Thor in omnibus format so i'm going through the stanley and jack kirby stuff great but you know that's a bit slow going for me so 
Um, but is. somehow I missed this graphic novel, even though I own it. So I'm going to have to, now that you recommended him, um, I'm going to crack it open. So just like the last time, Billy, thanks, because you've galvanized me now, you know, to get off my butt <laughs> and do something. <laughs> get this thing and get it. Then we can talk about it after I read it. Yeah. I actually only didn't, only bought that a few years ago. I didn't have that for the longest time and I knew nothing about it. You know, I heard, I've seen the cover and heard the name. So, you know, you hear a name like that. I'm thinking it's, you know, Galactus or, you know, Ego or just there's going to be something crazy where it's going to be this big knockout, drag out brawl. And it's not, <laughs> it's a very, you know, it, but it's good, you know. And I, I usually would think uh, if you would tell me what this was about beforehand, I probably never would have read it. But since I didn't know and I sat down and read it, and, you know, these graphic novels aren't, they're not, uh, super thick or anything like that like what is it maybe 60 pages it's yeah, not 59 yeah. 60 yeah 60 pages basically 60 64 pages so i mean you can really rifle through that and you know in an afternoon easily you know in an hour or so it's, it's but it's definitely worth the read check it's a it out nice sunday afternoon read now billy um much like yourself i'm a big fan of the um, Marvel graphic novels line the original Marvel graphic novel line so you know mm-hmm. i think it was in the late or mid 1990s that I went on this um, this hunt to acquire all of them, mm-hmm. and I got most of them except for uh, the Futurians by Dave Cockrum. Oh, Dave Cockrum, yeah. yeah. And then I don't have the Dazzler the movie um, graphic novel, but those are the only two I need. You know, but um, mm. so I, I need to acquire them because I'm a huge Dave Cockrum fan. But I've I've had some trouble finding. The Futurians, but you know, every now and then it shows up on eBay, then it's gone again, and then it shows up again, and then it's priced ridiculously high, and then it disappears again. So I'm eventually I'm hoping to pick that up. But it's funny that you mentioned the Marvel graphic novel line, but it's also not that funny because after you mentioned on Twitter when you direct messaged me about the Thor graphic novel, you know that got me to thinking. Okay, I'm gonna look through my stack of Marvel graphic novels that I have to to find that graphic novel. You know because I I mm-hmm. knew I hadn't read it. So as I was looking through the stack, I happened upon um, the second, the, only the second ever graphic novel Marvel did, which is Elric, The Dreaming City by mm. Michael Moorcock, Roy Thomas, and P. Craig Russell. Yes. So, oh. Billy, now I'm not saying this is uh, serendipitous that we're both talking Marvel gra- graphic <laughs> novels. I'm definitely talking about a Marvel graphic novel because you, you were the first one to mention that you're going to be talking about one. But, you know, in the process of looking for the Thor graphic novel, I happened upon the Elric one and I paged through it and I remembered how much I loved, you know, Elric, the character. So then one thing led to another. I finished reading the graphic novel, The Dreaming City, and I pulled out my old Elric collections of the the fiction, the the, uh, fantasy novels that Michael Moorcock wrote in the 60s and 70s and later on. And then I started reading them again. And I would recommend that to the listeners because Alric is a big part of early Bronze Age Marvel. He showed up in an early Conan comic too, you know, with permission given by Michael Moorcock. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that eventually led in 1982 to them, you know, asking Moorcock again if they can adapt one of his stories, The Dreaming City, uh, which is sort of Alric's origin. And then they did that. Now, Elric is a great character. He's based off of Conan, but not really, because whereas Conan is huge and muscular and full of vitality, 
Alric is sickly and pale. He's an albino, and he's got mm-hmm. these reddish eyes, you know, typical of albinism. But, Billy, he has this storm, this, uh, this, this sword, sorry, this sword, black sword called Stormbringer, mm-hmm. which, which is a vampiric blade. You know, when you kill someone with a sword, it drinks the victim's souls and transfers their strength to you. You know, mm-hmm. um, temporarily. So it sort of also uh, turns Alric into a vampire. So you know, he's yeah. different from Conan, but but you know, based off of Conan. But this is Michael Moorcock saying that you know he's going to try something new with the uh, you know sword and sorcery hero. And Alric is the original anti-hero, Billy. I mean, Conan is out and out a hero. He's got a, co- a code of chivalry. You know, he will kill the monsters. He will you know save the maiden. Alric is not like that at all, you know. <laughs> he follows yeah. his own morality, and um, you know he he's very. In fact, he isn't human, you know. So he looks down uh, on humanity with contempt. So in fact, he will sometimes do something grossly evil, and sometimes he will do something terribly heroic. So you know, he's he's the purest anti-hero you can think of. So listeners, I will recommend any and all Alric material published by Marvel. And, of course, P. Craig Russell, a legendary artist, mm. which we discussed at length uh, when we talked Doctor Strange the last time, right, Billy? And yeah. then also um, read the books, read the novels of, of um, Alric by Michael Moorcock. There's there's a couple, um, Sailor on the Seas of Fate, Stormbringer, The Dreaming City, Alric of Melding Bone, uh, The Weird of the White Wolf. There's so many, but you can find them digitally on Kindle or you can just pick them up in bookstores. They're worth it. They're definitely riveting, and they're they're a great read. So, so that's mm. my recommendations of Ragador. Um, Billy, are you going to pick up some Elric now? <laughs> well, I've seen that before, and I don't know if I just saw it when it was in very good condition, but it was expensive. But it, P. Craig Russell, I'm sold on that always. No, anything he's done, even stuff that maybe it isn't even something i'm super interested in reading as far as a story it doesn't matter i would still buy it because of his artwork yeah. he's just a tremendous artist i love his work that's true yeah i know i'm the same anything that you slap his name on i will buy so i'm mm-hmm. the same so uh, listeners we hope you enjoyed our recommendations of ragador check out those titles let us know if you have them or if you uh, have acquired them based off of our recommendations and then we can talk about it send some feedback for us and we can uh, talk about um, you know your thoughts your ideas on the show uh, on the next show so um, Billy that's it for recommendations of Ragador let's get into our final segment which is our allies of Agamotto and nexus of all reviews look at that what is it For our Allies of Agamotto segment this week, I've decided to spotlight a listener who sent us some wonderful feedback via email to sinkintotheweird uh, at gmail.com. Thanks to that listener. His name is Mr. Daryl Gemini from Ontario in Canada. Daryl, thanks a lot for 
your amazing comments. Um, I'm really grateful. You said a lot of good things about the show. And uh, I guess since you're a new listener, uh, we'll hear from you in the future again. I'm going to quickly read what you wrote. In the first email you sent us, you said, Hey, I just found your podcast and listened to the first episode. I loved it. I love the concept. I love the era of Marvel and recently started collecting bronze, silver age stuff after 20 plus years. Anyway, I got to catch up on your shows. Daryl Gemeni, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. So Billy and I were both uh, chuffed to hear from you, Daryl. We're always up for featuring some feedback on the show, and this was some pretty great feedback. So much appreciated, man. You went on to send us a second message after I replied to your first, asking you what you're currently into and what you used to collect back in the day. And you mentioned that you have... uh, uh, almost complete run of you have a complete run of Master of Kung Fu 1 to 25 that's something not even I have a complete run of and I'm a huge Master of Kung Fu fan so wow I'm impressed with that and then you also have a lengthy Daredevil run from 170 to 252 amazing Uncanny X-Men 93 to 250 holy moly um, you also enjoy Dean Modder's Mr. X stuff Sandman Love and Rockets um, stuff that's not Marvel but still pretty great i also enjoy mr x and of course i'm a huge sandman mark since i am a fan of the horror and i'm i'm guessing you're referring to neil gaiman's sandman here this could be matt wagner's pulp oriented sandman wesley dodds from the 1990s as well i I love that series but you know it might definitely be the more well-known neil gaiman version and then of course love and rockets the hernandez brothers are legends in their own right so again, Daryl, thank you for these wonderful messages. Um, much appreciated. And hopefully we'll feature more of your comments on later shows. All right, folks, for our Allies of Agamotto segment, um, I've also decided to do a nexus of all reviews a bit where I'm going to assign a Bronze Age moniker to a listener who gave us some feedback. Now, before I do that, I have to thank, thank some of our international listeners. We've recently gotten a review from Paul Hicks, uh, the host of the Wedding for Doom and DC OCD podcasts. Paul is in Australia. I checked for reviews um, on the international iTunes sites, and Paul gave us a wonderful review. So, Paul, eventually we'll definitely feature your Bronze Age moniker, which I will uh, ascribe to you, possibly within our... Yeah, in our next show. So you can look forward to that. And then we also got a wonderful review from uh, Count Druncula. (laughs) I'm not going to reveal his identity yet. Some of you folks might know who that is. He's a famous podcaster, (laughs) Fire and Water Network guy. Um, We'll definitely uh, feature your Bronze Age moniker as well, Count, (laughs) on a future show. But um, if we go chronologically based on when the reviews were made. There is someone from over in the UK who left us a wonderful review. And I'm going to uh, read that review right now and also uh, assign him his Bronze Age alter ego. Even though I don't know this person's real name, I'm just going to go by your iTunes um, uh, handle and I'm going to use that to ascribe a moniker to you. And I'm also going to base some, you know, of my own... uh, you know, likes and dislikes and predilections and <laughs> everything that I'm currently into, which I worked into this Bronze Age alter ego. So I hope you enjoy that. 
All right, the review was given to us on 23rd of April 2019 of this year, so uh, it's by AFC333. And AFC said, I seldom get much time for podcasts, but I do love a good one. As such, I need podcasts to grab me early on, or I just won't stick with it. Into the Weird did just that with me. It helps enormously that their podcast is set around that sweet spot of weird Bronze Age Marvel. But on top of this, the show is really well structured and presented. I feel like one of the gang, and as such, look forward to every new show coming out like an old friend's reunion. You could do a lot worse than starting at episode one and getting caught up on the show. Great job, guys. And that's a five-star review. Yes! Thank you so much, AFC. Um, In honor of this wonderful review, and in honor of you, of course, here is your Bronze Age alter ego design specifically for you. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, here we go. While vacationing on Muir Island and generally being a good-for-nothing layabout, Young mutant Jamie Madrox, aka the Multiple Man, was abducted by the Beast Men of the High Evolutionary and taken to Mount Wundagor. There, the High Evolutionary performed a series of groundbreaking but sadistically painful experiments on the hapless and gibbering Madrox, experiments which ultimately destroyed his sanity and turned his brain into puree. In spite of this, the impossible had been achieved. A series of advanced fighting clones, the AFC series, had been born from a serum cultivated from the multiple man's blood, a serum the evolutionary named Isotope M. Each of these clones had been genetically designed to far exceed their progenitor's meager potential. Sadly, as the research that led to the genesis of the AFC series had been conducted during one of the evolutionary's trademark spells of genocidal depression, 332 of the 333 clones spawned from the now mindless and slack-jawed body of Madrox were born with warped minds. Minds that were utterly and unrepentantly evil. Upon awakening, they slew the beast men, hijacked the high evolutionary's machinery, cobbled together a multiversal transporter, and leapt into myriad dimensions, intending to conquer all of reality. Oh, and they detonated an antimatter bomb in the heart of Mount Windegor, just for a lark. But what of AFC, number 333? He awoke years later, alone, in the ruin of the evolutionary's lab, disoriented and confused. Apparently, the power cell of his incubation chamber had finally depleted itself, allowing him to gain consciousness and seek his freedom. As he exited the crater of what had once been Mount Wundegor, AFC 333 doubled over in agony. It was as if 332 holes had been burned into his body, his mind, his very soul. If such a thing could be said to exist. And these holes, these 
empty spaces. These voids needed to be filled, else the agony would persist and hound him endlessly, making existence nigh unbearable. Returning to the ruins of Mount Wundagore, he donned what remained of the High Evolutionary's armor and set out on a quest to become whole. Mastering the powers of the hyper-advanced armor within minutes, AFC-333 commenced teleporting all over the globe in search of those missing pieces of himself. Finding nothing, he eventually ported to England, where he happened upon an abandoned police box in the middle of nowhere. Entering it out of sheer curiosity, he discovered a time-traveling mechanism inside. Using his incalculable intelligence and the matter-manipulation abilities of his armor, he outfitted the police box with a trans-dimensional engine far superior to its crude space-time capacitor and set out to explore the multiverse. Hopping through dimensions, he soon encountered some of his ersatz brothers, those flawed children of the coupling between evolutionary and multiple man, and discovered that when in close proximity to these grossly vile beings, he was capable of absorbing them into his pain-racked form. This strange osmosis seemed to alleviate his agony and made him that much more complete. A string of interesting adventures then followed across myriad realities, among those being the case of the dreaded judge in which our hero takes on an evil AFC who has become the chief of a future city where helmeted lawmen are judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped up into one. The Camelot Sanction, where an evil AFC in the guise of an unbeatable knight is intent upon deflowering the soon-to-be bride of King Arthur. The Lord of Precious Things, where an evil AFC gifted nine rings to fantasy folk just in order to mess with them a bit. You only clone twice. The case where an evil AFC seduced a volcanic island full of beautiful Japanese women with nothing more than a monocle and a Persian cat. And that, dear listeners, is the origin of the clone formerly known as AFC-333, but who has since become known by another name the grateful citizens of the multiverse have bestowed upon him. So give it up for the revolutionary devolutionary, the osmotic avenger, the reabsorbitron, the madrox redux. Let's hear it for the singular man. And that's it. Thank you again, AFC333, for the review, and I hope you enjoy your Bronze Age alter ego. I did not know much about you, but I just pulled some stuff out of a hat, and hopefully it came together nicely. But um, let us know. You can also always send your thoughts about what you thought about the moniker to our email address, and then um, if you don't like it, I'll try to come up with another one. <laughs> Once you provide some more uh 
email, uh, you know, information about yourself <laughs> so that I can flesh out the origin and the alter ego. All right, so um, that's it for our nexus of all reviews. Uh, we'll be back with um, our farewells. Um, and in the meantime, I'm going to play a short uh, promo, uh, yet another one. So don't go away, listeners. We'll be back in a jiffy. Are you a fan of Doctor Who? How about comics? If you're a fan of both, then Doctor Who Panel to Panel is for you. This podcast looks in-depth into the long history of Doctor Who comics, from the 1960s kid-friendly strips to today's present comics from Titan Comics and Doctor Who magazine. I review stories old and new, featuring classic doctors like Tom Baker and John Pertwee, to the 12th Doctor himself, Peter Capaldi. I also interview the creators behind the stories, from authors such as Paul Carnell to artists like John Ridgway and Lee Sullivan. I also talk to production people such as Titan Comics editor Andrew James and Doctor Who Magazine editor Tom Spilsbury about their career and work on these great comics. Check out Doctor Who Panel to Panel on iTunes, Facebook, and download episodes direct from DoctorWhoComics.com. And that, dear listeners, is it for another episode of Into the Weird. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. This was the first of our Halloween-themed episodes where we focus on Bronze Age horror comics from Marvel. And I had a blast, Billy. I don't know about you. This was really fun, uh, really in our wheelhouse, since you and I are both big horror nuts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You never, you'll never, you never uh, have to twist my arm to do uh, a horror comic, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, we're going to be back in a week's time with another episode and then um, a final episode before Halloween wraps up. So, listeners, we're not going to preview that too much because we don't want to spoil anything. We want you to be surprised once the episode comes out when you're going to see what we're going to be discussing. So, um, other than that, Billy, I hope you are still going strong on your 31 Days of Horror both of us have committed to watching a horror movie a day. <laughs> so, Billy, just to give the listeners at this point in time, uh, I mean, as of now, uh, you know, while we're recording now, it's the uh, over here. It's Friday, October the 4th. And I think it's still October the 3rd where you're at in the States, Billy. So you yep. have at this point in time, correct me if I'm wrong, you've already watched three movies. Do you quickly want to let the listeners know what they what they were? <laughs> Sure, yeah. The first one was uh, 1958 Dracula or Horror of Dracula from Hammer. You got to start it off right with Hammer. Oh, yeah. Um, and then number two was Planet of the Vampires, uh, Mario Bava. Ooh, classic. Yeah, I, you got to love him. Yeah, I love that movie, but I haven't even spoken to you about that yet. I spoke to you a little bit about the Hammer films, but the Hammer film. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we still have to talk about that, Billy. But that was a good choice, inspired choice. Yep, and then number three was uh, my all-time favorite classic universal horror film, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> I, I know a lady that we're friends with on uh, uh, Twitter, Karen, from the Planet 8 podcast. She also contributes yeah. to the Back in the Bronze Age. Um, yep. Oh, Bronze Age Babies, sorry. Bronze Age Babies, yep. right? Karen. Yep. Mm -hmm. Karen yep. Walker, she is a massive fan of the Creature of the Black Lagoon, Billy. So hearing you yep. say that will make her day. 
and she's also got a huge collection. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of our allies of Agamotto. She always retweets our stuff and, and you know, engages with us on Twitter and, and social media. And yeah, then, Karen's Billy, awesome. uh, just to give us a preview, what's, what's going to be uh, tomorrow night's film? That will be one that is hilarious. I, you know, you can't go wrong with 1950s sci-fi movies, especially the big insect craze. It's going to be <laughs> the Black Scorpion. <laughs> oh yeah, nice. Oh, nice. I love that movie. Oh, oh it's yeah. so yeah. crazy, so so campy, but I dig it. Yep. Wow, yeah, talk it. about a, a brilliant uh, creature feature <laughs> or animal horror. That is it. Yep. Uh, that's one of my favorites. So, so Billy, um, uh, as you know, uh, if you look at my list, I've decided to go a different route. Like last year, I started off with the Universal movies, and then I mm -hmm. went to horror uh, to Hammer, and then I went to modern horror. This year, I've done something different. I decided to start right off with horror anime, and um, you know, my first week is filled, saturated. The first five days of Halloween with horror anime. So I've I've decided on. My first one being Gyo, or or else, uh, you know, otherwise it's also known as Tokyo Fish Attack, which is based <laughs> off of, uh, yeah, a horror uh, by Junji Ito, the famous Japanese horror manga artist Junji Ito. So Gyo, and uh, I've watched that. It's great. The animation is is amazing. You know, it's it's very flowing. It's it's superior to most animation out there because it's from Japan, really. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh know, yeah. yeah. And um, there's some really gruesome scenes, almost more upsetting than the stuff you find in the book. Um, I'm a huge fan of the comics of Junji Ito. Uh, I've yet to talk about him on Longbox of Darkness, but I will soon. And he's known for stuff like Uzumaki, you know, and, um, you know, uh, Tomi. So uh, this is about basically uh, fish and other sea life uh, deciding to leave the ocean on mechanical legs that they've somehow acquired and menace the living on, you know, but they're all rotten. They're all dead. They're zombified creatures from the ocean and they start to attack, you know, humans on land. <laughs> it's like a, an invasion <laughs> of dead sea creatures, but aided by mechanical conveyances. <laughs> really weird, but really gross and really there's a lot of scares. Okay, so then uh, for my second one on October the 2nd, I opted for Dracula Sovereign of Darkness. Billy, now this is also a Japanese animated film, but it's based off of Tomb of Dracula. Have you ever watched it? I actually saw that. <laughs> this is funny. The first time I saw it, I sat through it. It was dubbed in Spanish, I think. Oh. <laughs> so, of course, I didn't Ay, understand what was going on. But it was, it was so cool. The visuals were so great. So I watched it that way. And then I did finally find it uh, in English. Oh, nice. But uh, it's, it's fun because I think, isn't there also a Monster Frankenstein one as well? Yes, there is. There is. That's also on YouTube. You can find it. This is my favorite of the two, but the Monster Frankenstein one's definitely also a classic. So, mm, okay. Um, yeah. So I didn't include that one, though. Um, maybe I should have. Because my third, um, you know, choice was Demon City Shinjuku. Now, mm. Billy, this is a... Uh, okay, lots of people swear by this film, but I would gladly have replaced it with uh, the Monster of Frankenstein anime because this is one of the few films on my 31 Days of Horror that I have not seen. You know, but I, I try to try new th new films in, in Halloween too, you know. Normally I have 70% uh, stuff that I want to rewatch and then 30% new stuff. 
unfortunately, this time around, man, I can't. I didn't like this city at all. Uh, this this uh, movie at all. Um, Demon City Shin Shinjuku. I wouldn't recommend it. But maybe I don't know. Maybe you're into it. Uh, just the animation didn't do it for me, and um, uh, I don't know. The story is also a little bit wonky. You know, um, it's just about you know these two former friends who have this this uh, rivalry and you know one is evil and uh you know uh, he the one you know tries to kill the other by by willingly becoming possessed by a demon so lots of cool horror ideas but the execution was lacking so i don't know if the listeners out there have ever seen it let me know if i'm completely off my rocker here but i really did not think this movie is that great you know so <laughs> unfortunately i can't uh you know recommend this yeah, but it's based off of a novel way back when by a guy called uh, Hideyuki Kikuchi or something like that. So, you know, um, in many in many uh, DVD stores, you'll you'll find it as just uh, Hell City Shinjuku or Monster City. But I think the official title has been amended to be Demon City Shinjuku. Yeah, so um, Billy, I was a little bit disappointed. So hopefully tonight's movie, um, you know, will be better. Which is which I've chosen to be Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust. Mm. Yeah, so that's the second one in the the Vampire Hunter D anime uh, anime movie franchise. You know, I've watched the first one, Vampire Hunter D. I watched it last year and I quite liked it. But have you watched Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust? I'm not sure if I've seen that one or not. I saw one. I can't remember what channel used to run it, but there used to be a TV station that late at night used to run. A lot of that kind of stuff mm. and i was watching something one movie one time late at night fell asleep woke up and i'm pretty sure that's what was on the television and mm. man was it brutal i couldn't believe it <laughs> cool cool that's great because this i'm definitely looking forward to it and i've heard good things and i've seen the trailer i'm all in so i'm hoping this will uh, cleanse my palate <laughs> from the demon city shinjuku disaster <laughs> Okay, so That's Billy, great. then we're not going to uh, go into our whole list. But so far, listeners, we've watched three movies each. And uh, I'm, I feel like we can accomplish this feat. We can make it, Billy. What do you think? 31 days, 31 movies. We're going to do it. <laughs> well, absolutely. Bring it on. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so listeners, then um, where can people find us online? Well, you can check out uh, com. That's our website where we'll be posting an addendum uh blog post uh, which has images from what we discussed during the show today and you can also send us an email at sinkintotheweird at gmail.com or a voice file I'm still waiting on that voice file there listeners please send us an mp3 voice file do it please do it. please 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 yes yes we need it <laughs> and then um, uh, Billy they can find you on Twitter and what is your Twitter handle uh, just look for Doc Strange, and then it's at Billy D underscore Licious. <laughs> Good, Billy. And you also run a blog. Um, and where where is that blog? That very famous. Yeah, that's yeah, it's magazinesandmonsters.com. Um, and a Facebook page by the same name. I've been doing Warren magazines for the past three weeks, and I'm going to do those all the way up until Halloween for the rest of October here because. I just finally got my hands on a, a bunch of them. Oh, man, they're just so crazy good. I, I just thought I got to spotlight them. And then October is the best time to do it. Great, great, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been keeping up to breast with them, and uh, they're tremendous fun 
check those out, listeners. And then, Billy, I don't know, you've also got a couple of episodes planned for Magazines and Monsters, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There should be one coming out very soon. I'm going to run through a Marvel Bronze Age comic. Um, you know, maybe only about a half hour long episode, but then uh, after that, there should be a full length one. Uh, so uh, I'll keep that a secret what that's about yet. But <laughs> yeah, look for two two during the month of October. Excellent. And then listeners, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dark Longbox and our uh, podcast official Twitter page is at Into Weird. And um, I'm also resurrecting the Longbox of Darkness, the horror comics uh, podcast that I used to do this year. Uh, come come next week, we'll be having a new show there, Billy, and I'm featuring you as a guest. And then um, another guest will be on. Uh, he's a genuine podcasting superstar. I'm just going to tease a little bit. I'm not going to say his name, but he's from the Fire and Water Network. He's graciously <laughs> agreed to be on the show, and we've already recorded that. So that's going to come out later this month. Um, so the Long Box of Darkness is back. Um, stay tuned for that, listeners, if you're of a mind for some more intense horror. But, Billy, I'm hoping that the listeners will be back for next show because um, it'll be more Halloween-related stuff. Not too uh, heavy on the horror, but definitely in the a weird vein of Halloween that we so love. So, listeners, please come back to us. And uh, remember, weird is cool. Whether you're, you know... Uh, people discriminate against you that's just because you you know you're weird and they're jealous and you know we uh-huh. are the same we support people <laughs> who are unlike ourselves um, uh, who bring you know things to the table that we don't normally see and that's the kind of things we like the, the Steve Gerbers of the world <laughs> yep for sure the Jim Starlins <laughs> the guy the people basically who are willing to experiment <laughs> not just with yep. mind altering drugs but who, who are, are are brave when it comes to things like you know, the creative side. So, yeah, uh, uh, stay in touch with us, listeners, and let us know and send us some feedback, and we'll be glad to, to banter with you guys. So, I believe that's it for me. I hope you all have a great uh, week and an even better October and a wonderful Halloween. Thanks for listening, listeners. We'll see you soon. All right, stay weird. <laughs>